0: back to Looking Down the Literary Gun Barrel with Bowman and the BFG. This is November 26th, I want to say. And today we're talking yes. about You Only Live Twice, episode 12, or How I Learned to Stop Mourning and Love Japanese Porn. <laughs> how you doing, BFG? <laughs>
1: I'm doing just fine, uh, Bowman. I was just uh, laughing at... Uh... And, and and
0: acknowledging that you took my idea for the title, so that's great. I did. yeah, I had to. Uh, we were struggling for a title, and you just hit one real quick. So I shouldn't say we were struggling for a title. We haven't titled all of our episodes, but we like to have a little little bit of whimsy to start off our show.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I kind of like how we didn't put an Orientalist perspective on on the title too. Oh no, well, we did have Japanese porn, I suppose, but yeah, but
0: we didn't we didn't charge it with any racial angle necessarily true no it's true because hentai japanese porn of
1: course is, is a very strong uh, aspect of japanese cult- culture as well wow you see so
0: virginal and chaste am i that i never knew what that word
1: was see i was always wondering if if they showed bond hentai because the thing about hentai and this is what i i was because i was looking up i was actually t- looking up things on you only live twice the other night and uh you were know you, as we both or were, were you
0: looking up japanese porn and you only live twice just happened to creep
1: in there No, no, no. It's actually, I'll I'll confess more that the knowledge of that word hentai is more because I've been to, like, Comic-Con conventions and whatnot. Because I don't know if you know this aspect about hentai, but hentai is animated. It's basically dirty anime. And uh, I'm curious, but we know that, of course, in the book that we were about to talk about, that it it was an anime that Bon was looking at to bring himself, uh, I guess... Perpendicular again, I suppose. To bring himself perpendicular.
0: 90 degree angle, my friend. 90 That's degree euf- angle. That's a euphemism if if ever I had one. Now, look, I don't want to compare angles here, at least not yet. I, I don't want to even <clears throat> bring that connotation. No pun intended. No pun intended. No pun intended. I don't even want to bring that connotation in. But 90 degrees seems... Um, I don't know. I suppose as, as one gets older, one has to accept that the angle of... Well... It it will lower, it will lessen, won't it? <laughs> it will, it will. We
1: want to apologize in advance to our listeners at this present moment because the opening conversation of this, I think, just by the title, I think, opened up a can of worms here. So we'll just um, close that can of worms and uh, go on our merry way into uh, Fleming's Japan.
0: Yes, I think so. And I, just for the record, I'd like it, I'd like it uh, reiterated that the title idea was yours, and I had something far more, far more. Um, Discipline, talking about the lovely meadows of the Japanese highlands. You'd be great covering up political scandals, Scott. I don't really think I I would. Uh, I don't think my wife or anybody who knows me that well would think that I would be any good at that. (laughs) You're so discreet in that respect, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, indeed. Anyway, boy, we got, what, a month? Not quite a month since uh, we last talked about Honor Majesty's Secret Service and we were both really excited about getting to this because this is the the final of the Blofeld, the so called Blofeld trilogy. This is yes. where Bond um, finally puts an end to Blofeld, or at least we expect him to do that. And um, and after, it had a lot. Of, it, sorry, it had a lot of writing on it. I will say that. Yeah, a lot writing—that's for sure. And after the poignancy of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which we agreed wasn't a, wasn't a a perfect book, but was still a very very strong outing for Fleming. Um, that we we were going to find ourselves in a little bit of, well, what a heightened suspense to the beginning. Yes, of a
1: very a very heightened suspense and a need to see like a very a, a storyline. I think that's been like I think because of the films and whatnot. The whole Tracy uh, dilemma and the aftermath of it was so disappointing in the celluloid version that. I think we just wanted to make sure that Fleming, you know, did it right, you know, and that would give us the catharsis that we needed yeah. to yeah. Pro- properly feel, you know, that ter- that you know that Teresa was avenged, you know, in a, in our um, in our own mind cannon, I guess you could call it.
0: Mm, yeah, and whether she was or not appropriately is is yet to be determined. But um, Josh, you and I are going to yes. mix things up a little bit here today, yes. aren't we, with our format?
1: Yeah, we are. We're going to kind of throw a wrench into things and, you know, go more uh, – we're going to try, you know, try a little looking things in through, through a different lens here. And no, I don't think I can bullshit that statement any further than that. So, yeah, we're going to do things differently
0: here today. Basically, what's going to happen – I'm going to take over the, uh, the plot summary and um... – and I, I'm going to do that bit and the publication information. And the reason for that is because you've you've done a really good uh, job for us. You've looked into Fleming's time in Japan because one of the things that that speaks when we read, You Only Live Twice, and anyone who goes away and reads it will will learn quite quickly that there's an awful lot of info dump in this book, which isn't all bad, and I I use the term info dump generically here, um, but Fleming did spend time in Japan preparing for this book, and you're going to go into that, because the autobiographical information will be quite helpful, particularly now that we're coming chronologically to the end of Fleming's life. This, You Only Live Twice, was the last novel to be published in Fleming's lifetime, it wasn't the last book that he read or was working on, but it was certainly the last one to be published in his lifetime. So you bringing that little bit of 1960s uh, context to it, I think will will help us out quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I think it will it'll it'll ground things a bit and and make. I think it'll definitely explain you know the the, the, the de, explain the depiction of, of Japan that we get in this book. Uh, because I think one thing I like to talk about, and I'm sure you do as well, is how this, in comparison to other Fleming novels, how the how this journey to Japan uh, is uh, uh, it feels, you know, to us as a reader in comparison to other travelog like episodes he's had in previous books.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it yeah, and I think your use of the word travelog is going to become important here, perhaps in a way that it hasn't in some of our other studies into Fleming's work so far, because this is a travelog, and. Um, yeah, I mean, more than some of these other exotic locations where Bond has found himself, Fleming really, really, really stretches out the Japanese visit.
1: Yeah, he, he oh he definitely does, and I think when, I think when it comes to narrative and we get to the locales and the angle and whatnot, I think we can really we'll talk about that in in detail. I think, and what we'll do is I think while you do the publication information and. I have some information, of course, uh, Fleming and J- on Fleming's time in Japan, um, in which he was inspired for this book, obviously. Um, we'll be able to pinpoint, you know, exactly the ideas that he was trying to convey in this book. And the angle, I think, will flesh that out a bit more.
0: Yeah, cool. All right, buddy. Well, uh, look, um, I f- I'm wondering if there's any more pleasantries that we need to get through before we start this. It's... Uh... It's a cold day here in Scotland. We've actually had a couple of beautiful weeks of winter cold. You know what I mean when I say that. Like it's not like Canada cold, but it's minus two, minus three in the morning. That's nice. There's a nice frost on the ground, and it's been consistent that way because Scotland's weather is anything but consistent. It's uh, usually usually the seasons kind of melt into one another, and you don't really get those discernible edges to them. But um, this fall into winter has been really quite attractive. We have had a nice couple of weeks of crispy leaves you know, switched over with a bit of rain, but then we've had the frosty mornings and the, the, you know, scraping your car windows and all that type of stuff. It's been it's been really nice here lately with the morning sunrises and stuff. It's, um, uh-huh. I mean, living in Scotland is great for a lot of reasons. It's also challenging for a lot of reasons, but I don't think I would trade in what you're dealing with right now.
1: No, definitely not. Um, we've had a pretty good, you know, going into October, even to November here in Ottawa and Canada in general, and uh, well, no, Ottawa in general. Other places in the country have have, have differing. N- apparently, Newfoundland is like a of trop- the tropics right now, from what I hear. But uh, and anyways, the um, yeah, usually like every year, every year here in Ottawa, the snowfall comes gently. You know, like like a little bit of frost on Halloween, but and then it gets warm again, and you get the November rains and stuff like that. And then, of course, in December, before Christmas, you get that nice little light, little snowfall, you know, and eases us into January, where the big storms usually come, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in this perspective, in this, in this, in this uh, situation here, though, Mother Nature, maybe I don't know, maybe she wasn't happy. The you know, the Americans elected an idiot into office. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps she took out her, her her vengeance on the on the on the on the western on the eastern seaboard there. And decided to basically just throw a blizzard at us on the first day of the first official snowfall. Two days of blizzard.
0: I was wondering how far into the show we'd get before somebody mentioned the U.S. election, because of course, since our last episode, Donald Trump has been uh, named president elect, and uh, just since last night, there are now two, one potentially three states that are looking for recounts on their um, on their their ballots, but. Um, can we get through this book, you think, without referencing Donald Trump? I think if we
1: if we actually just, uh, I'll just state here with his orange toupee and beef bleached skin, and his millionaire background, and his megalomania taking no bounds to the <laughs> point of being authorized by Smirch to take over the American <laughs> government. He is he is an exceptional Bond villain, and definitely a lot more colorful and exciting than the caricature that Blofeld has become.
0: More colorful, anyway.
1: Orange is the new black.
0: O- Orange is the new white. Orange is the new white. Yes, exactly. Let's move on, and uh, perhaps we should just uh, preface this episode with a little disclaimer regarding racial language, because um, in Fleming's time, and I know you're going to get into this, uh, "You Only Live Twice" was probably one of the first books in the '60s that really introduced Japan in a in a detailed way to a Western. Readership. Now, I'm I'm talking out outside of the academic environment, you know, or the with the well traveled environment. This was a popular film, a popular film series. By the time this book came out, and to see Bond in Japan would have been of great interest. And all of a sudden, we've got all kinds of stuff happening. But the, I I think compared to some other places he's been, um, like Harlem, I think that Bond and Fleming are a little more socially conscious in this book. I don't think they get it right. I mean, they don't get it right. Certainly not by today's uh, litmus test, but at the time, I can I can think that you only Live twice would have been perhaps not so obviously a racist text as, say, Goldfinger and talking about the Koreans. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I didn't really get a could get a sense of Japanese racism in here, uh, racism towards the Japanese in particular, or any post colonial attitude. If anything, I found, and I guess we'll go into this. we talk about Tiger Tanaka. But I found there was almost Fleming having a familiarity with the attitude that Tiger Tanaka felt about, you know, the fall of a great empire and him being the survivor of yes. it and having to deal with the Western world and its influences. And I think they, I think, I think he related to that very strongly. Yeah. And uh, I think that is partially to do with the friendships that Fleming developed with the real-life Tiger, uh, and also, of course, uh, Dicko Hughes, who is the inspiration of Dicko Henderson. But again, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to dispute what you say. You're absolutely correct. But I, I guess what I was trying to say is that although there is no downward looking bond in terms of cultural attitude here, there are still a lot of slurs and there are a lot of references to a woman's role, which may have, of course, it, it has some, it has some stereotypical root in traditions of Japanese, but it's not. It, it's not nice to read about the subservience and all these things, you know? I mean, yeah, fine, it's true, no. but I don't think it's a modern text in that way, but I don't think for Fleming's time it would have been considered as racially charged maybe, even as some of the stuff coming out of New York or the Caribbean.
1: Oh, absolutely. oh I definitely agree with that. And I, I, yeah, there definitely wasn't some kind of, like, uh, malevolent Orientalism in this story at all. In fact, mm-hmm. the only real malevolent or- Orientalism really comes from is from the, from the Blofeld angle, and so yeah. Um, I don't really get the sense that he was, I think he was very impressed and awed by the culture. Yeah, I, too, I, but... I got that, I got that feeling in the mm-hmm. book, not so much as in, in the writing compared to other books, but I, I found that, you know, the way that he talks about Japan in the novel definitely showed me that it definitely had an effect on him for even for the limited time that he was there.
0: Yeah, I agree. And we will get into that. So, so let's just, um, let's just say how do you and, do and move straight into the publication history. Hi. <laughs> nice one. All right. Um,
1: I, I, I bowed formally to you, but by the way, when I did that, so.
0: Appreciate that. I, I didn't see you. I was too busy playing uh, Paper, Scissors, Rock with my two hands. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, um, March 1964, Jonathan Kate. Publishes, you only live twice. Uh about 60,000 pre order texts, and that's pretty good. A pre order of 60,000 units is uh, really any statement clearer to say that James Bond has made it is unnecessary. Bond's made it for a decade now in the books, and well, almost a decade. And on screen, of course, 1964, we've already got a couple of James Bond films out there. Connery is very firmly James Bond, and we start to see Fleming write a little bit more towards the films in his novels. We talked a little bit about that with Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well. Anyway, how was it received? Well, um, yeah, 1964. Reviewing You Only Live Twice in the Sunday Times, Cyril Connolly wrote that Fleming's latest book was, quote, Reactionary, Sentimental, Square... The Bond image flails its way through the middle-brow masses, a relaxation to the great, a stimulus to the humble, the only common denominator between Kennedy and Oswald. End quote. Now, if you can make any sense out of that, you're a better man what? than I am.
1: <laughs> I don't understand. Why the Oswald-Kennedy reference? I don't understand at all.
0: I don't know. Is it, is it because, I mean, a year previous, 1963, Kennedy was assassinated? Is this some sort of like... Um, is this some sort of uh, a reference to, I don't know, like, the only common denominator between them? What, like, both of them shared an interest in spies and guns? Like, I, I don't understand why the Kennedy reference came up at all. I,
1: I, I guess true, because Oswald was into guns, and, 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 and Kennedy was not guns in that respect, so... Yeah. No, he was in the bond. Yes, he was.
0: Yeah. So okay. Anyway, that's Ch- uh, Cyril Connolly, and I'm glad it's the only time we're going to be uh, citing Cyril Connolly on the show because that didn't make any sense. Um, the the <laughs> word critics- salad. So that is. Uh, the anonymous Times critic who was writing about the cliffhanger ending to this story, which we'll talk about, it's not super cliffhanger, not quite like you would expect from, you know, an episode of Dynasty or General Hospital, but uh, he says, <laughs> and why I went there, I've got no idea, something very... I, I think it is like General Hospital, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Fleming would keep us on tenderhooks, but at this rate of going, even his most devoted admirers will free themselves before very long, end quote. Ooh, the masses are getting bored of Bond.
1: But that's kind of a ridiculous statement. It just seems like someone who is over Bond and just thinks his opinion matters to everyone
0: else. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, keep that idea in mind. Esquire magazine. Uh, reviewer here, Malcolm Muggeridge. I found this to be an interesting one considering that Fleming had previously serialized some of his work in Esquire. Quote, You Only Live Twice has a decidedly perfunctory air. Bond can only manage to sleep with his Japanese girl with the aid of color pornography. His drinking <gasps> sessions seem somehow desperate, and the horrors are too absurd to horrify. It's all rather a muddle, and scarcely in the tradition of secret service fiction. Perhaps the earlier novels are better. If so, I'll never know, <laughs> having no intention of reading them. End quote.
1: Okay, I like he, he did kind of summarize the. the, the the uh, novel in, in a way that I'm kind of leaning towards it. But at the same time, uh, how do you... Why would you review a book of a series you never read before?
0: <laughs> yeah, no. It's kind of stupid. Also, Particularly this one, because it's basically a sequel.
1: Yeah, I, I know. Like, would he be confused by, like, you know, like, what's going on here? And, and I, I guess he didn't think that really mattered, I suppose. So it's just, it just seems like this guy that's deciding, I'm going to go go pick up like a freaking um, I don't know like a, a Dean Kuntz book and just like review the crap out of it you know and tear <laughs> it apart like so just for kicks to test my literary acumen you know
0: yeah yeah well look buddy I mean we, we've done this 12 times now oh this is our 12th time and one of the reviewers who we always have is Maurice Richardson who writes for The Observer uh, yes a rather left of center paper over here but really I, I think I'd say center left at the time it was as well. Uh, anyway, Maurice Richardson, he's always, a, to my mind, a good reviewer. He's not great and flourishing. He's not spectacularly absurd. He's just a good, steady, consistent voice. And here's what he thought of this. Though far from the best Bond, is really almost as easy to read as any of them. He was, however, critical of a couple of different things. And he said, quote, the narrative's a bit weak, action long delayed and disappointing when it comes. But the surround of local color... Has been worked over with that unique combination of pubescent imagination and industry, which is Mr. Fleming's specialty.
1: Okay, um, that's a good, that's a that's a fair point. Whatever. I think I disagree on the last note. I think, but again, this gets into like us talking about the uh, travelogue. So I'll will yeah. withhold my words till, till till then. I do want to point out though, and I just thought of this because I just find that name ridiculous. Malcolm, what was his name, the previous critic, Malcolm? Mug- Muggeridge. Muggeridge.
0: Yeah, which sorted hat did
1: he get at Hogwarts <laughs> when he first attended, that's, you know? Like...
0: That's what I thought, too. Yeah, what house did he belong to in Hogwarts? He sounds like a Hufflepuff to me. <laughs> yeah, anyway, Francis Isles, writing in The Guardian, uh, wrote that, quote, I think he, Fleming, must be getting tired of the ineffable James Bond and perhaps even of writing thrillers at all. Of the 260 pages of You Only Live Twice, only 60 are concerned with the actual business of a thriller. End quote. Well, I don't entirely disagree with that. Um, Nope. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. Now look, I don't have any funeral music, and he's not dead. At least not at this time. But it seems to be here in the chronology of Ian Fleming, where our good friend Anthony Boucher, writer for the New York Times just stopped reviewing Fleming novels
1: I think I, I think I think he only lived twice uh, sorry, sorry I my theory is that Anthony Boucher is actually uh, a mad I think he is a mad fan of Ian Fleming but his pride about being a failed novelist a spy novelist or a thriller novelist has just it's just you know it's just too much for him to bear so he has to keep up that countenance mm. you know you could be and right. I just think and I just think he was so emotionally devastated by the death of Tracy. You know, that he just he, – he, and, and, and Bond, and he just related to it so much that he just couldn't bear it anymore. You, you, you know what I mean? Like you, you could be right. He just couldn't he couldn't bear it. He, he just couldn't do it, man.
0: Well, I tell you what. Um, it took me 11 months to figure this out, uh, and I should have figured it out. My research should have, you know, showed me this earlier. But, uh, yeah, turns out Boucher, he always hated people pronouncing his name that way too. Boucher is how he wanted his name pronounced. Boucher. <laughs> And, not kidding, but that seems even more more pretentious <laughs> I know but you can actually get a, a rather hefty collected volume and anthology of his editorials you can find them I mean he he was a very respected writer at this time and although yes. he, we've you know we've poked fun at his perhaps most likely envy of Ian Fleming we yeah. um, you know, he's, 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 he's kind, kind of, of our a grumpy of cat. Work. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say so. Anyway, yeah, all of this is just to say that the New York Times has a different reviewer, Charles Poor, and Poor noted that Bond's mission here, quote, is aimed at restoring Britain's pre-World War II place among the powers of the world, and on that subject, above all others, Ian Fleming's novels are endlessly, bitterly eloquent. I don't disagree with some of that. Um, I I don't like the eloquent. Bit, I don't think it's endlessly bitterly eloquent. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessary to, to be flourishing your adverbs like that, and maybe that's the Hemingway student in me, I don't know, but it just seems like by the time I reach the end of that, what is endlessly bitterly eloquent? It feels like it should be up there with Kennedy and Oswald from Searle Connolly's review. Yeah.
1: Or the Hogwarts guy, whatever his name is. Yeah.
0: Well, I suppose though, in fairness to the New York Times, maybe the editor, now that this, the film series was off and making a lot of money, maybe the editor wanted to cut the neg wanted to cut the negativity from the reviews uh, of Fleming and go more towards that modern sensibility that you have a lot now in film uh, film criticism, and you'll know that and uh, book uh, criticism where there's reviewing without opinion and not really saying anything. Do you know what I mean? Like. And yes. in, that, in that respect, I, I value Boucher. I value Boucher because, for whatever else, he was a hard-ass, but at least he was an opinionated reviewer. You, you know, and we didn't yes. always like Owen Gleiberman, who wrote for Entertainment Weekly, but we appreciated what he said. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, I miss Owen Gleiberman so much, you have no idea. Uh, opinionated reviews uh, of character and everything, because of online media... That's completely gone because any anyone who has a good degree and has a good understanding of computers, how to use uh, WordPress or any kind of blog kind of website, they can do they can do the exact
0: same thing. Yes, and that's what I was gonna say. Like, um, <clears throat> I I wouldn't defend necessarily someone like that, but I can tell you, as someone who teaches English and writing and reading, that um, it, you know the world is sped up so quickly. As you're saying, everybody has access to the internet. Everybody's a critic. Everybody's a reviewer. And unfortunately, um, th- it doesn't seem like the traditions of writing and the traditions of editorials like that—that's not taught. Like, you don't have to be a reader to be a writer. You don't have to know what came before you to continue that genre. Now, it's just like, oh, I know, I'll just do it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the whole idea of like I, these things are important to to people like me and you because I think we're we're because we're not millennials, we're pre-millennial, and we're sort of stuck in this world where. You know, like, we were, we, were in the, we, we were born, like, in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, and we're in that transition world, you know, between, like, this is what you're supposed to – we have that strong sense of tradition to us, and but we're slowly kind of being seduced by the modernism of the age where things like the literary canon don't really mean anything anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you get some guy who goes to university three years ago and graduates of, um, English literature and says, you know what? Shakespeare sucks or, or, you know, and, and he, and he posts a blog about it and then he actually gives a very good reason why he, he, he it, it is so, but you just don't do that. You know, you got to respect the traditions of the time of what was written at the time. Like I got a friend, for example, who hates old movies because they, they look cheap and, 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 and boring, you know, and he's a smart guy, but he says things like this.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: mm-hmm. it's because, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I just find that nowadays is that you got to respect. There's there's a lack of tradition being respected and a lack of appreciation for what came before. And instead, everything is either well, I don't know, it's compared to something in the present when it's actually took place before. You know, this person uh, wrote this story, and that's and, and now this movie is copying that storyline. It's not actually ripping off the book. Isn't ripping off that story. I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent here, so I'm going to kill the. I'm going to hit the brakes and screech and just stop there.
0: You you are kind of, but I I totally see where you're coming from, and and I I think that in the context of talking about reviews for books which are 50 years old, that it pays to look into the tradition of this type of writing because yeah, I mean Anthony Boucher was a good editorialist. He just didn't like these books for his own personal reasons, and that became a consistent obsession with him and. And I think that the trend towards valuing the cinematic profit of a franchise like James Bond over the literary, that helped nurture the newspapers and media into perhaps being less critical towards anything James Bond. And, you know, this guy, Charles Poor, wrote a rather poor review because he didn't have any teeth to take on a movie franchise and New York Times didn't want him to.
1: Let me just uh, speak here now on this whole um, issue we're talking about, about, you know, publishers and writers and whatnot and receptions to books of this time and whatnot. And it's kind of funny because this book you sent me for my my early Christmas gift, I guess, The the Man with the Golden Typewriter, Ian Fleming's James Bond and Letters, which was edited by Fergus Fleming, a a, a close relative to uh, Ian Fleming. Um, you know, because they were able to fill in details about who these people were and the situations, of the correspondences, and whatnot. The book essentially goes through Fleming's career as James Bond, you know, beginning with Casino Royale all the way up to his death. Um, his correspondences with loved ones, you know, with Anne, uh, with um, his friends like Noel Coward, uh, his publishers, his editors, uh, Richard Chopping, even his uh, cover artist. Um, all these different you know, aspects of Fleming's life. And it's a very good read, actually. I, I recommend it for for anyone who's interested in the life of Ian, Ian Fleming and, and put a stronger context into what we're doing. But this is from actually um, the Only Little Twice period, I guess, when when Fleming was writing the book. And it's right into, I believe it's his publisher, or no, but one of his editors, William Plummer. And you were talking about you know, how... Um, Boucher was saying how, like, you know, he didn't like this particular genre or these particular books or whatever. And I always thought, you know, what would Boucher and Fleming be like if they if they met? You know, would would it be an awkward tension? And yeah, I think I think Ian Fleming would take any criticism from Boucher that that Boucher would have said personally, or or if or if if he was put down by some of the reviews. I think actually reading the character of Fleming that I'm seeing in in these letters, I really. Find that he was definitely a very magnanimous man and was he very easily laughed at himself, too. Um, I'll just give you an example here of the letter, um, in response to his to to his uh, his editor to William Plummer from Goldeneye, 22nd February 1963. My dear William, end of term report. I've completed opus 12, save for two. These three pages, and I'm amazed that the miracle should have managed to repeat itself. The 65,000 odd words that is, and pretty odd some of them are. Since it's said in Japan, every day I have heard you chuckling wryly. I know, standing one, in corner, over my shoulder, and God knows what Arthur Whaley et al. would have to say. hernia, and, an, and you can say that again, but I think you will glean some Japanese est- estoterica. And, after all, when the last English novel about Japan was written... Just to give you an advanced free sun, Bondo san is about to pleasure Kissy Suzuki, the Yama girl, after she has stimulated his senses with toad sweat, a well known Jap aphrodisiac, as of course you know. <laughs> but you have to take a long hike through Japan before this and similar mayhem are portrayed, and I fear that the only soundest addicts of Japaneseery will stay this course. It's called the twice. The first line of a haiku in the manner of Basho, 17th century itinerant poet, whose works will be, I assume, on your bedside table. Anyway, the the contemptible work is completed and will be submitted to honorable task masters shortly after my return. Otherwise, no news except far too much death and brooding. Had conscience at not sharing the ghastly winter all our friends have been through. It must have been like this for those who were away during the Blitz. I do hope you have breasted your your way through without damage or too much dismay. Here it has been a shameful 80 degrees throughout and perhaps the steadily best weather we have ever had. Haven't you arrived at the age when you should winter abroad? Your bed is permanently turned down here, and TLC waits you always. Just had a long letter from Michael, so please pass on the contemptible book news to him and save me an extra chunk of reportage. That's nice. So it's just you know, an example. Yeah, it's nice, yeah. There was one I read about you only twice, and I can't find it right now, but he basically recalled the book... Uh, he, he, well, he used the word ridiculous. That's all I have to say. So I think Fleming realizes, you know, that he even responds to a letter from some of some some hardcore fans, you know, who are uh, talking about in the, in the day and age. Anyone get on an on 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 entertainment website and say – and be like the bull the Star Trek geek about, well, in this episode, why did he do this? Or which episode, why didn't he do that? And yet in this episode, and that totally contradicts that, Fleming had writers – had people writing into him like that who would basically, like that guy we mentioned, who, who uh, Major Boothroyd was named after. Yeah. Um, and Fleming would respond, and there's letters of Fleming responding, <laughs> almost like bit teeth, you know, and but with a smile, you know, to their, uh, to their criticisms. And, stuff. and he even said about Dr. No, and he said that, like, I find it really fun to write about crazy stuff like that. I don't want to write a series. Like, he actually says in a letter that he wasn't really writing something to be too ultra-realistic. So just to give you a point of a view of what Fleming kind of thought of his own novels. He just enjoyed writing them because they were entertaining and fun. Not just because he was trying to say, oh, here is my, my life work as a, as a spy, you know, put on page, you know what I mean? Or or mm. people, on, you know, like he wasn't really trying to capture that John Le Carré banal- banality of espionage, you know?
0: Yeah, I think maybe earlier in his, uh, in his writing, he was more in tune with elements of Cold War, you know, and uh, drawing from his own experience perhaps a little bit more and wanting to do that. But here, I agree with you 100%. It, it's just a more uh, a fun, escapist kind of purpose to what he's doing.
1: I, I think it gave him great joy to write. And uh, there's even a letter, too, where um, he he wasn't married to and then, of course, the, the uh, Viscountess. But she was pointing out that Ian is on the typewriter now, just uh, banging away at a book. Uh, she says, like, I am happy. you know, she, she said in correspondence to someone. And it just goes to show, you know, that, like, I think Fleming had a lot of issues in his life and and, and writing these novels, I I think, you know, he, he got great pleasure from them. And that and that's really nice to, to think that, like, these novels, you know, while they're probably, you know, the whole editing, publishing process was probably a bitch, but at the same time, he enjoyed writing. And I think a picture is a much more, I, I think, um, colorful character. You know, than just like the womanizing kind of self-regrettable person that we kind of seen that we build build him up to be so far. You know.
0: Well, I don't think we've just built him up to be that, but I agree that perhaps we have, we we've maybe overegged a little bit on that 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 um, that part of his personality. But that's why I thought you'd enjoy the book, so I'm glad you are because yeah. um I, you know, normally I wouldn't have picked up the correspondence. And I didn't just get it because I thought, oh, well, we're doing this, this series on all the Bond books. Like, yeah, okay, it's interesting, but not from a fanboy point of view. Like, you actually learn how the writer evolves. I thought there would be a couple of good um, spinoff benefits to reading it beyond the fact that it would help with your, you know, primary research.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think what really came out of this is that before – I don't think I would have really gotten along with Ian Fleming if I had met the man at the time, but I think now, like, you know, his attitude and stuff, and if if you ran into him and you, like, you got a chance to meet him or whatever, I think he'd be great to have a drink with.
0: Yeah, well, oh, I'm sure he would be great to have a drink with, and I'm sure he wouldn't say no either. And (laughs) to a cigarette as well. And to a cigarette as well, yeah. Well, look, dude, um, I had another review here, and it was something more modern from a Goodreads community reviewer, but... I think I don't think I need to say that. I was going to kind of see how it has evolved over, you know, how reception. To oh, the I book think you has should read it.
1: Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, I check I need... out the uh, the uh, Goodreads uh, review.
0: All right. Well, a reviewer David Nickel wrote, "It's obvious from the book that Ian Fleming had quite a good understanding of Japanese culture and wrote about it in a very sympathetic way, considering the time when the book was written." However, the blurb on the back should just have read, boorish, washed-up Western spy goes on a supposedly impossible mission but spends most of the time looking at tottering Japanese breasts and insulting his hosts before strangling Blofeld in his volcano lair.
1: I like our title better, but that's still a good title.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a blurb at the back. Look, dude, um, let's <clears throat> let's not talk anymore about the publication. I feel we could say more, um, just perhaps... We can meditate a little bit more on bridging the 1960s audience of criticism towards literature and today's more internet savvy, everyone can comment with blogs. I mean, we, we, we're touching on it. We're skirting and dancing all around the borderlines here. But we got a job to do. I'm conscious of time. Yes. And I really want to hear about Ian Fleming in Japan. So go over to you, bro. Okay. Okay.
1: So in about 1959 or so, the um, the Jonathan Cape Company, as we know, is one of the main publishing uh, houses that Fleming used for Bond, um, wanted to put together a travelogue and they wanted Fleming to you know, to, to write it for them. They thought – and Fleming and both of them thought that it would be a good idea to uh, expose his travelogue, you know, talents to um, nonfiction. So he took out a five-week tour across the world, visiting cities like Hong Kong, Macau, um, Vienna, basically all across the world. And this whole this whole volume was going to be called um, tid- uh, was sorry, was titled because it was published, I think, in 1963, um, Thrilling Cities. So it was in Hong Kong where his where he met an old friend. I, I think they had connections during the World War II. Uh, named Richard Hughes, he's an Australian friend from the Sunday Times.
2: Okay. He was
1: a he was Australian correspondent, basically, for the Sunday Times. And Hughes basically meets Fleming in in Hong Kong, and they go around yon know, opa you know, in Hong Kong for a few days, and then afterwards they fly out to Tokyo, where Bond, where Fleming sorry, spends three days there. Uh, uh, Taking in the local color, I, I guess it would, would be. Uh, in his, now, of course, Richard Hughes is the inspiration for Richard Dicko Henderson that we encounter in the novel You Only Live Twice. Australian, brash, colorful individual. A slight stereotype on Australians that we kind of feel in culture, we see in pop culture, though. Um, but regarding Dicko Hughes, though, so he when when they arrived in, uh, in Tokyo, they met um, Toro Toroa Saito uh, or Tiger Saito, and he was the local representative of one of the big Japanese newspapers, Asi Bahun, I think it was called. I can't pronounce it correctly, but um, they basically toured Japan. He, they, well Saito escorted Fleming and Hughes are over, through through Japan on various for for three days as a whole, uh, going into very little locations like restaurants and bars and uh geisha dens you know that that sort of thing they were kind of going into the off tourist areas of of japan um even to the point where you know avoiding like the temples and museums no plays uh imperial palace they avoided that stuff completely fleming was into the judo academies there's a famous judo uh world capital uh, building in, 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 um, in Tokyo called Kodokan and it's basically the world, as I said, the world capital of Judo and Fleming made sure to visit that place. Also training centers for, for Judo that they would encounter like in the mountains and on the southern islands like Kyushu. As well, um, he visited apparently a soothsayer. Uh, I can find more information on that, unfortunately. That was from a wiki, so I can't give you a full disclosure on that. But I'm um, really – but uh, and, and I looked in the You Only Live Twice correspondences and he doesn't mention anything about it. So I, I don't know on, on how much that is true. But it must have came from somewhere for them to, to write that. It just seemed like something you'd make up, you know? Yeah,
0: it's a rather obscure thing to just throw in there. Like – and then he drove yeah. a monster truck.
1: <laughs> the, the monster truck would have been interesting. I don't think he care much for it though. No, neither do I. But um, he was on there for three days and he continued the tour. So – It seems to me that he wanted to get kind of like a a more like someone who seems like the the place where like a businessman would travel in Japan. And then for his own reasons, he wanted to check out things like Judo Academies, stuff that he was more interested in than the the typical Japanese flavors that pulp culture seems to uh, uh, attract. And he would return in 1962 for two weeks to confirm some data, I guess, for thrilling cities, as well as you only live twice. Hmm. Um, It just makes me feel as a whole that his experience in Japan was tenuous. And I think that we're fortunate that he was able to tour the place in such a non-traditional fashion with men like Saito and Hughes, because they were instrumental, in my opinion, in providing the detail to all the restaurants, the hotels, Every time Bond knocked back Saki, you know, and it was, as one of the critics said, route to his guests, you know, and, you know, and and, and doing these side adventures outside of the typical gaijin tourist route, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, but I feel, though, and I guess this goes into the travelogue a bit, that um, I don't think he got the flavor of the place like you would not Har- like he did for Harlem or for the Caribbean or other locales that he's been to. I feel that he felt like a gaijin there and he kind of went into this off corner and was just kind of escorted around. And I just don't, I just don't think he lived it, you know? And I think that's why we get kind of like almost like a, a pseudo fantasy version of Japan. You know, we get kind of like the, the fairy like reveries of the islands of the Ama and like the pseudo fantasy horror of Dracula's castle, you know? Um, it, it just feels that my impression is that he never truly, really, truly experienced the world and only did, like, adequate research for the travelogue and for the book, You Only Live Twice. Hmm. And that, to me, I, I, I don't know, like, that's what I could find in Fleming in Japan, and other than the inspirations of Hughes and Saito and where they went and visited and and, and whatnot, I feel that the travelogue, you know, to me was very simplistic compared to the ones that he'd done before.
0: Which is... I don't ironic. know, what, Which is ironic considering how much uh, midsection is devoted to just visiting different places and seeing different things. It's almost like he's trying to overcompensate in quantity for a lack of quality understanding.
1: I definitely agree. And the locales, I'll mention again that the whole aspect, the, the whole depiction of of the in the la- in the second half of the book of going to uh, the island of Kuro in the south in South Japan and seeing you know, the you know the Ama Islands and the Ama girls and their idyllic existence you know diving for shells and all this sort of stuff and uh, for pearls I I, I I should say that sort of um, depiction that he's showing there illustrates you know. I think that th- he, he he did a good job in in that and he captured that. But I think he captured it for a reason um, in terms of the narrative.
2: Hmm. And
1: it just wasn't just like the other Bond novels where I feel like Bond walks into this neighborhood or this area of a city and the culture there is all around him and he reacts to it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally, it, it, see, I totally. It know seemed like
1: as one of the critics said a bit a bit perfunctory in terms of how he was using the pen, you know, and, and, and his environs to illustrate his own feelings about the place, and as well as, uh, I think, when we compare, when we talk about Tiger Tanaka in general, I think about his attitudes and about the post-colonial war, world as a whole.
0: Yeah, there's a cardboard um, texture to some of what he puts up here.
1: Uh, cardboard, more like a sandwich sign on the streets, in my opinion.
0: Okay, well... <laughs> You know, those are made of cardboard, often, aren't they? Yeah, I guess so, or like a plywood, or I don't know. <laughs> You're probably right. Right. Well, does that does that bring us on to our plot summary?
1: I think it does. Yeah. Like as I said, like the, the his time in Japan is limited, and I think it really kind of sums up, you know, in a way, um, to me, my feelings of how he he portrayed Japan and was his limited time experience in the place.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's good still, though, that we got that information because. Um a lot of writers don't even do that much, right? Particularly in the context of what we were saying with bloggers with internet access, a lot of people don't even bother going, you know? And yeah, fine, Fleming's expenses would have been covered and all that shit, but the truth is he still had an interest in wanting to go there and perhaps part of the part of the sort of um Yes. part of the, the sort of distance in the story from the settings and the locations that he tries so hard to render come from this sense of respect that he had like he was maybe Maybe just truly impressed by the environment, and didn't feel as though his hand was capable enough to render it in a story. I think he felt like a gene in that culture. Gen- I really think he did.
1: I also think too, if you think about like the 1960s time, this was this was you know the the, the era of Pan Am. Oh, and, 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 and travel was like a real trend, you know, everyone loved doing world traveling and all his friends and, and he, he and his friends and all the people in the social circles and, and, you know, of the, of the upper class, the upper middle class and, and, and the, and the, and the even upper class would be above that. They were world travelers, you know, jet setting millionaires going across the world. And they've been to places like Vienna and Hong Kong, and Tokyo. These were the places where you know where people stopped and and it's just, it's just just to kind of experience the exoticness of everything you know and and it just seems to me that he was just it, 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 you, in you only live twice. I just think these are people who read his book as well and they were aware of these locations. So how Fleming described it was as if he for, in the, he's been before and that the right and the reader of Miami have been before as well you know hmm. and I think Tokyo was just kind of just like there's something it just feels like in his writing when he writes about Japan it just feels like oh by the way did you know this about Japan and no that's actually not Uh true this is actually what the Japanese feel and this is what the Japanese believe and and I think in the book he was really just showing the contrast to western society that Japan is under despite the fact you know that it's friendly Tokyo and you know and they like TV and they like movies and they like America America, and that's all bullshit, right? Because they're just smiling and waving at the Democrats who that's taking over the culture. But in, in reality, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like it's inside, you know, their pride is crippling them, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a really astute observation. And um, without blowing too much hot air up your ass, I, I do think you've hit something really, really central there to what is at the heart of this text. And I would like to go out before the plot summary and just say that although we might encounter over the next little while in our discussion a little racial Uh, slur here or something that doesn't feel quite right and not quite comfortable. I don't think in this story Ian Fleming was trying to do anything but compliment Japan and talk truthfully about what he viewed. Now he of course brought to his experience and his observations the same biases that we all bring to our observations and experiences and he was a white privileged Uh, son of mercantile class, private educated, you know, all this stuff. And we've talked about Fleming's uh, bigotry in the past. But I really don't feel in this book, for better or for worse, that the locations are um, anything but what Fleming thinks and feels is authentic Japan. There is a charm to some of what he tries to deliver here.
1: Yes, 100%.
0: Okay, so... Let's just talk about the plot summary of You Only Live Twice. And in contrast to what we usually do, it's uh, Bowman here taking over the plot summary and giving the BFG the day off. 1964's You Only Live Twice. When the story starts, Bond's in Japan, spending time with Tiger Tanaka, head of the Secret Service. This cold open shows the two men, in pretty respectful repose, enjoying a Geisha house, but Bond is very weary of the time. We understand from dialogue and exposition that a relationship has been strengthening slowly for a month. In what has now come to be a trope of Bond literature, this opening leads to a flashback, where Fleming then tells us and shows us how Bond got to be where he is, namely Japan. The opening chapter ends with Bond's promise of confidentiality being reiterated by Tiger, so we know that he's about to obtain some sort of crucial information. Chapter 2 then takes us back to London, and the Fleming formula moves from there. Since the events of Honor Majesty's Secret Service eight months ago, 007 has lost passion, interest, and direction. Tracy's dead, Bond is on the rails. His secretaries are worried about him, and M is even ready to cut the cord when the neurologist the best in the country, no less, says that given Bond's personality and character type, it's challenge, not therapy, that will set him free. 007 needs one more chance, he says, an impossible mission that will recharge his spirit. M promotes him to the civil service, which shocks Bond, who thought that the bell was truly tolling for him, and instead of packing up his brown box and emptying his desk, he's sent off to Japan to liaise with Australian man Diko Henderson, who will help with an introduction to Tanaka, head of the Japanese Secret Service. Well, Bond and Deco hit the town hard <laughs> and enjoy socializing, expat lifestyle together while they trade stories, and Bond receives his first lessons on Japan and what to expect from Tanaka. Now, Tiger's a hard man. He's one very married to custom and tradition, and Diko helps introduce them. Now, the idea of Bond's assignment is to offer Tanaka British intel from Hong Kong the Macau blue route in exchange for Soviet info decoded through the so-called Magic 44 machine. This will one-up the Americans whose post-war relations are trending upwards and put Great Britain back on the intelligence map because it, since the war, has only trended down. Most of the world agrees, Britain's dried up, and we get the sense through M's irritability that MI6 is in some danger. Tanaka informs Bond that he's no need of the intelligence that he's offering because they already have it. And at first, this guts Bond, kicks him right in the nuts, as it was, he thought, the best that his government could offer. But Tanaka counters with a surprising move. He says that the only way Bond can receive the Magic 44 intel line on the Russians is if he does a favor for Japan, one that a foreigner, a gaijin, would be best positioned to perform, namely to kill the so-called death collector, uh, who's a foreign botanist, a collector, a poison plant gardener, this guy. Shatterhand, Dr. Shatterhand, that's attracting suicides. By the time Bond gets involved, Tiger tells him there's been about 600 suicides, which is dishonoring the tradition of Japanese morality. Bond and Tiger spend a lot of time, the large chunk of the novel's midsection actually, hanging out, learning about each other, and Bond gets inside knowledge on ninja life, even gets a bit of training, and is told Mm -hmm. that he'll need that in order to enter the castle of Shatterhand by night. Bond is then made over into a Japanese man, not dissimilarly to *You Only Live Twice* film's version, but he doesn't get married. Uh, and and he doesn't, look, doesn't look like a Vulcan either. He doesn't look like a Vulcan either. No, <laughs> uh, he uh, he strengthens his cover through Tiger through this makeout uh, or this make up, I should say. He makes out later. He goes off to the volcanic yes. island as part of and his more. cover. It's part of his cover, he goes off to this volcanic island of Kuro, where he spends time with Kissy Suzuki and her family. Now, Kissy was a sexy, is a sexy, ex-Hollywood star who returned to Japan after being mistreated in the United States. The only actor to respect her was... David Niven. David Niven. Uh, And that, of course, is a nod Fleming makes to his own first choice for 007. An isolated group of fishermen, though, reside on this island, and all of the females, including Kissy, dive deeply and naked for a special type of clam-like fish. Well, Bond enjoys Kissy's company, but she falls for him much more seriously. She's kind of like, um, well, she's a tool to use to get what he needs, and as long as everybody understands that relationship, it's fine. But she falls for him pretty seriously, and unconvincingly, I might add not to get too far into my angle, but anyway. Yeah. She helps Bond gain safe passage to Blofeld's castle, which is built on and around numerous fumaroles, which are themselves hedged in by poisonous plants and guarded by piranha lakes. Well, Blofeld has also enlisted the services of special thugs from ex-criminal organizations such as the Black Dragons. Anyway, he gets caught quickly. This is Bond, gets caught quickly. is recognized by Irma Bunt, and put to the pressure room, which is a stone chair built above a thermal and explosive mud hole, not dissimilar to Casino Royale's um, ball bursting under the chair. He acknowledges Bond at that point, who he is, because if he doesn't give up his name, he was under the cover of being a deaf and mute a fisherman, which doesn't really... Or a miner, rather. Which coal is- miner. Yeah, coal yeah. miner. And what the fuck he'd be doing on that island doesn't make any sense. I think he realizes <laughs> his cover's as stupid as his own white skin. So... He decides to tell. He's more orange he from Trump. He's, no, oh, there you go. Anyway, damn it. Damn it. I'm sorry. So he, he leans I'm back, I, I said I would I did. Sorry. He leans back, smokes a couple cigarettes, acknowledges who he is, and after some pretty aggressive man banter, a duel between he and Blofeld ensues, because Doctor Shatterhand, it's revealed, is actually Blofeld, and Irma Bunt is his little Japanese slash German um, wife. Anyway, Bond quickly incapacitates Bunt with a staff. Um, really disappointing moment there for me. It's kind of like popping a balloon. You're expecting something interesting to happen, uh, a la Rosa Kleb, but no, he just whacks her in the head with a stick, and that's her done. Um, and eventually he defeats Blofeld, strangling him to death before setting the thermal volcanic vent in the pressure room to open fully, thereby destroying the castle. Bond falls into the ocean from a great height because he's, wait for it, hanging off a helium balloon that's attached to the castle to ward off suicides, a.k.a. <coughs> attract suicides, and he is shot, or sorry, the, the balloon is shot, so he plummets to the ocean, and the impact leads to amnesia. Well, Kissy, because she's got nothing better to do and likes to swim, is just wading in the waters below for him, conveniently, <coughs> takes him to safety in a cave, tends to his wounds, and then, upon discovering his memory loss, decides to take full advantage and i must admit i wasn't prepared for this she convinces she convinces bond that he and her are lovers and they live together happily and are local fishermen she does however promise the shinto priest that she will support his departure if he starts to remember anything but the shinto priest is like well if the guy doesn't remember anything he's probably better here anyway so okay as long as he (laughs) believes that he's your lover and you guys are fishermen then that's fine and as long as he never looks in a mirror... True, sure, that's legit. As long as he never looks in a mirror, he'll be just fine. So, anyway. <clears throat> Bond recovers but he's on He's already Uro. killed
1: Dracula, so it's
0: not like it's his mirror image he has to worry about. <laughs> that's true, although there's enough Dracula imagery in here to fill a boat, but we'll get to that. Bond recovers on the island over a few months, but he isn't intimate with Casey. Oh, by the way, the novel should have ended a long time ago, but we keep going. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Bond recovers on the island uh, but he isn't intimate with Kissy and she w- she's kind of worried that he's lost the ability um, to be amorous. And so, well, this plus the chair in Blofeld's pressure room which I said echo already the chimes of torture and relationship woes at the end of Casino Royale with Vesper. And I'm wondering if this is Fleming looking to end where he began because maybe he knew this might be one of his old stories or his last stories but we can talk about that with narrative. Anyway, Blah, blah, blah. To combat this, this, um, lack of intimacy, Kissy visits a sex shop, as you do, in Fukuoko, and gets toad sweat and lizard powder, as well as a sex manual that she refers to as a pillow book, from a wicked-looking old man. That sounds all kinds of wrong to me, but whatever. She drugs Bond's dinner, which, by the way, happens to be beef, because meat is the way to a man's heart, and almost immediately, Bond thrusts back into a moor. Slowly... Bond's memory returns, and he talks about dreams that he has had of white men in strange places, big cities that somehow feel close to him. It all culminates one day in his seeing the word Vladivostok on a piece of toilet paper, which triggers an impulse in him to recapture his old life and kissy lets him. She helps Bond leave Japan for Russia, alone, and with no fucking clue of anything, but that doesn't seem to matter, despite the fact that she's carrying his baby what to learn to learn (laughs) about yeah to learn about his former self this is where the story ends with a wisp of a suggestion from fleming that bond is recovering from his amnesia and he'll be connecting the dots back to london and to mi6 just as bond's arrival to help rid the island of blofeld was foretold by the shinto prophecy quote these things were brought about as the six guardians foretold by the man from across the sea The doctor who treats Bond after his rescue predicts the ending and Bond's inevitable departure. Quote, isolated facts that he will recognize will turn into chains of association. End quote. End of book. And end of summary. So there you go.
1: Very good. Very good. Very concise. I like your style.
0: Well, it was nice to do it for a change. I enjoyed that.
1: You went to him in more detail, plot-wise, of certain events occurring, I kind of just give a summary of of I guess the the, the general course. Uh, I'm not saying either is I'm not saying either is is better or or worse. I'm just saying it's just, it's just a different way of, of doing it. And uh, what I never really thought about, to be honest.
0: Well, I, I tell you what. Um, while you have certainly grown more concise and you know reflected on general core, I remember some thirty five minute plot summaries from you in the first few episodes.
1: Oh, I, I recall those very well. As I as I was the one that had to. Um, excrete the uh, the verbiage.
0: <laughs> anyway. so yeah, that's uh, that is you only live twice and um, yeah, all kinds of shit to talk about. Well, I mean, I mean
1: there's so much to talk about here. Do you want to just dive right in, into the uh, angles, I guess, and then compare from there? Yeah, let's do that. Um, before we go into the in the angle, when I was reading through this um, in Fleming James Bond letters, I mentioned to you about a correspondence with uh, Noel Coward, who was one of Fleming's best friends. And as we know, Coward was a playwright, a, a poet, a writer, an actor, um, very witty, um, very witty kind of, in, in a sort of like, I'm not sure about his sexual inclinations, but wasn't Coward like a homosexual? Hmm. Or am I totally off?
0: I don't know, Josh. I actually don't know that uh, enough about him. But you're probably right. Something's ringing a bell when you say that. But
1: yeah, that's probably you don't think just of Oscar my, Wilde, perhaps.
0: Yeah, that's just my judgment. I, I, I have
1: right. no idea. But anyway,s he, he's a very, very what's the word? Um, acidic individual, you know, very sarcastic and and whatnot. And uh, he has a lot of these bone mots that he kind of throws out in his writing and whatnot. And uh, he was typical, I guess, of some of the Hollywood elite at the time, and and the British Hollywood elite in, in particular. Very very critical individual, but you know, but even so, friendships can can, can develop, you know, in those circumstances. Um, here's a letter. Uh, this is during when he was. This is this is Noel Coward's response to Doctor No. Now I, I bring up Doctor No because you only live twice, and both Doctor No share that Orientalism, you know, about them, but in a much different way. In comparison to like how we talk about dr. no and his depiction and the Chinese and, and, uh, and it's much more racist and, and and very typical that we see in dr. no as a compared to what we experience in the culture diffusion we get in the oil live twice
0: hmm I hadn't really put that together but you're absolutely right I mean the uh, there are comparisons to make there
1: and if you think about it too I mean with 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 um, uh, Dr. No you have um Dr. No is this Fu to like villain right a very kind of malevolent orientalism that is given to the character and the people and the, and the and the people that work for him whereas in the only live twice we have we have a western man adopting this uh, malevolent orientalism to, to his own effect you know we have Blofeld in full samurai kit you know walking around with a samurai sword Where did that come from, by the
0: way? I I know, that uh, that was weird. Oh, by the way, with Noel Coward, I've just discovered this uh, little factoid here. Did you know that he was asked to play Dr. No? No, interesting. And he replied, no, 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 a thousand times no. And in the same year, he also turned down the role of Humbert Humbert in Kubrick's Lolita. Interesting. It is interesting, because those are two, you know, pretty high-profile roles.
1: I I agree. Yeah, he seems to be his own man, that's for sure. Anyways, this is is his response to Dr. No. Uh, This is him writing to Ian Fleming. Dearest beast. I like how he calls Fleming beasts. I I don't know. This guy sounds a bit queenie to me, but anyways. (laughs) uh, um, This is just to inform you that I have read Dr. No from cover to cover and thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. Your descriptive passages, as usual, are really very good indeed, but as a gentleman in Oklahoma sings about Kansas City, you've gone about it as fur as you can goo. I'm willing to accept the centipede, the tarantulas, the land crabs, the giant squid, except on that beastly table at Goldeneye. I am even willing to forgive your reckless use of inv- invented verbs. I inch, thou inches, he snakes, I snake, we <laughs> pelp, they pelp, etc., but what I will neither accept nor forgive is the highly inaccurate statement that when it is 11 a.m. in Jamaica, it is 6 a.m. in dear old England. This dear boy, not to put too fine a point on it, is a fucking lie. When it is 11 a.m. in Jamaica, it is 4 p.m. in dear old England. And it is the carelessness of this kind that makes my eyes steal slits of blue.
0: Do you know what, man? I wrote in the margin of my paper what has happened to time zones since 1960s or since the 1950s. Because I, <laughs> I couldn't do the math, and I just thought to myself, there's no fucking way Ian Fleming's going to screw up something like that. But he did, he did, and Noel Coward caught him on it. Well done, Noel.
1: I was also slightly shocked by the lascivious announcement that Honey Child's Bottom was like a boy's. I know that we are all becoming progressively more broad-minded nowadays, but really, old chap, what were you have been thinking of? I am sneaking off to New York on Thursday, where I shall be for two weeks, and then I, I inch to Canis, or rather Bayot, where I shall be for June and July. I have been very sad without you, although Blanche d- takes me to Goldeneye every so often to have a swim and a good cry. Violet Fleming's housekeeper, I fear, is rapidly losing her looks with what with childbearing and one thing and another. But I think it really it is really one thing and another. I must wheedle this letter to a close now and clank into my shower as Cargill the gleaner is coming to dinner. Love and kisses to Annie and my godson, and the usual slavering hero worship for yourself.
2: <laughs>
1: Anyways, I just thought that was just enjoyable for our listeners there to get an idea of you know what other people thought of Ian Fleming and I
0: don't know Noel Coward's pretty awesome actually. Yeah, that makes me want to read a little more about him, like about that type of stuff, you know. But I don't. I, I tell you what, man, hands up. I don't know very much about Noel Coward, and uh, he could be a real fun figure to learn more about because I mean he's he's a knight of the realm. He was you know, respected, certainly artistically and culturally over here. And um, I don't think growing up in Canada, we know anything about him, do we? Unless we're indoctrinated or cultured into him.
1: I think I saw some movies with him. I know he, I think I remember him in the original Italian job, but that's really about it.
0: Hmm. Now, here's the challenge for you, Josh. Having done what you just did and revealed what you just revealed, you are now responsible for segueing back into the angle on You Only Live Twice.
1: Well, I think the connection with Dr. No and the Orientalism, uh, the, the fantastic aspects of it that you only twice and Dr. No share, I think is a good way to do it. Okay. And also, I think talking about, you know, that someone who, who it also shows that Fleming, I think, from someone like Noel Coward, who was a script writer and a, a playwright as well, someone who would, you know, be able to point out these mistakes to him and realize, you know, that it makes you real that Fleming, while we enjoy his writing and whatnot, he was not the greatest in the world. And I think he only the twice. I think is an, is a clear example of a writer. I think kind of uh, a writer of of waning health, of being fed up with um, um, being disconnected from the world and the the grim winter of that was in England in 1963 when he was writing the book *The Stated World* at the time. Um, his own kind of feelings towards British, uh, you know, being the downtrodden. Um, failure that they were after World War II, I think a lot of that sticks into this book. So I, I thought it was an accurate comparison of, of the times and you know the world that, that was leading up to when he was re- 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 writing You Only Live Twice.
0: Okay, I'll grant you that. Um, I won't say any more about it apart from I'd like to hear your angle on You Only Live Twice. And uh, I'm really glad that we finally, our conversations have evolved into such a way where we do it this way instead of going through the book bit by bit by bit by bit by bit like we did for the first couple, and those those were cool, good, organic, you know, lively chats. But I, I like that we now come to a place where we can talk about the angle and then look backwards. You know, it seems to be a bit more productive.
1: Yes, no, I I, I, I agree one hundred percent.
0: Well, look, um, let's start with a adversaries and allies. And um, is it even necessary to to remind anyone of our angles? Sure,
1: why not? I mean, for those who are just tuning in now, the angles, acronym, adversaries and allies, A, N is for narrative, G is for girl, the Bond girl, so to speak, L is for locales, E is for equipment. Do I need to be more concise than that? I don't think so. Uh,
0: no, you don't need to be more concise than that. Um, let's Let's talk about adversaries and so, allies. Okay,
1: so we got Tiger Tanaka. Uh, he kind of sends to the Bond. There's a bit of impetus Japanese serving the Western powers, wary of the, as we mentioned, the Democrats do this Western Asian coming into their culture. Um, he's affable. Uh, he gets along, and then Bond and him get along well, despite their differences. He kind of seems like he's like this... Uh, I think he has kind of like this almost father-son kind of role to Bond that he I, I think he puts on him. He's trying to educate this man, you know, into his culture and whatnot, wants him to understand. So obviously... Tiger likes him, and there's a connection that he wants to make with Bond here. And I do like kind of like the the the. I guess it's sort of like a a rough camaraderie between the two of them. Um, do, do you have anything is to, to say about the relationship between Bond and Tiger in terms of did you feel that like there was sort of a as I mentioned like almost like they got along like sandpaper they brushed together but they were also very different at the same time and. And, that, and I mentioned about the father-son aspect, about, like, Bond being the ignorant Gaijin and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Tiger, you know, wanted to be the, the pedagogue, you know, to set him right. You know what I mean? I,
0: I did pick up on some of that, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that I, – I didn't really value the relationship all that much like I didn't read I didn't read into it quite that way I still think that M is the father figure in this story and he speaks pretty loudly to me oh yes the way he slams his hand on the desk and calls Bond petulant and you know insubordinate and I mean I, I get all of that but um I mean if you want to talk about Tiger now that's cool we can talk about Tiger he is the biggest ally as such um I do want to go back and talk about M and a couple of other guys but oh I want to get into M as well well but to go
1: back to Tanaka though um I like how that, like, almost in many ways, his cruelty and, and lack of compassion almost makes him like a villain. At the same time, you know, that's the culture that he lives in, right? Like, um, I think he was an enjoyable character as, say, Darko Karen Bay, But I, I think how he has a pride for the, the internal Japanese misogyny that we see and look at down with weakness on contempt. I think he's almost like Flemington Bodeman of Japan himself or the Japanese psyche, you know? And... And it's almost like through the, he's a bit of a, he's an exposition bot, 100%. And I think he really got in the way of us really feeling the locales of the place and Fleming being able to use his writing in a different way to describe Japan um, with so much info dumps. But I, fe- and he's almost like a tour guide in, in itself, right? Like Tiger Saito was in real life. But I do feel that Fleming um, uses Tanaka as a way to address. I don't know, he just seems like, um, to me, like a very, uh, besides the exposition aspect of him, he seems like a very vivid character, and he stood out for me, and I found him refreshing in that respect.
0: I did find elements of him refreshing, yeah. I liked his feelings of America's post-war takeover. I I mean, I, I like... A lot of what he says, and I find it humorous that Bond is, you know, ironically says, Well, I, I can't, I, you know, I don't know how you feel there because I haven't dealt with that yet. And I'm thinking to myself, now, 2016, that's funny, Bond, because Britain right now is, it's, it's a melting pot, and it's a very positive ethnic melting pot in that respect. I mean, there's lots of great diversity here in this country, but I don't think Fleming or Bond would have seen it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought Tiger was okay. He's certainly a tour guide, and He's interesting, but I think he's overused given his largely hands-off function. I mean, he he is the guide. He assumes responsibility for finishing Bond's Japanese cover a little too zealously for my liking. I I don't really, I don't think he needs to do quite as much as he's doing. He he brings him to this fucking ninja training center, and he talks about his ninjas. And ninjas are awesome. And this is probably the first time that they ever existed. I mean, I know in the movie it's the first time they were ever filmed for in in, in that capacity, and so. I mean, there's, yeah, there's interesting stuff that he shows him, but you know, I I like the way that Tiger holds his cards pretty close to his chest, and and the, the way that, you know, the kind of slow way that Bond grows on him throughout the throughout the the midsection. He he's necessary presence, I guess. I mean, I, I mean, you're asking me what I think of. Him. I mean, I think he's necessary, but he isn't as engaging as a Felix Leiter or. Uh, you know or maybe even eat, Dico Even Deco Henderson Dico- yeah Dico Henderson is a minor bit player but he's really interesting like Bond you know he's kind of caught within a bigger colonial system and he's just playing his yeah. part taking what enjoyment he can from it but yeah to get back to to Tiger um he's uh, I don't know man like I feel that that Fleming over eggs the pudding to make him special in places and he's very clearly as you were intimating a moment ago he's he's used pretty transparently as a puppet for Fleming's own feelings and criticisms about Britain and the way the world is changing. And I, I, I've got a little marked section here I'll read for you. It's just a little brief bit. It comes from chapter eight, Say It With Flowers, It's which is actually a pretty pretty uh, standout chapter full of schoolyard banter, you know, kind of hormones, cultural desensitiveness for both of these guys. It's, it's interesting. But anyway, um, here's what Tiger says. Um, speaking to Bond about empowerment and about, you know, kind of how the countries go and and Bond's trying to get to the heart of what it is that Tiger actually wants him to do. Um, uh, I took you at your word, Bond, and I requested an audience of the Prime Minister. He instructed me to proceed, but to regard the matter as a state secret known only to him and to me and, of course, to you. Come on, Tiger, Bond said impatiently. Cut the cackle. What is it you want me to do? But Tiger was not to be hurried. He said, bondo son, I will now be blunt with you, And you will not be offended because we're friends, yes? Now, it's a sad fact that I and many of us in in positions of authority in Japan have formed an unsatisfactory opinion about the British people since the war. You've not only lost a great empire, you have seemed almost anxious to throw it away with both hands. All right, he held up a hand. We will not go deeply into the reasons for that policy. But when you apparently sought to arrest this slide into the impotence at Suez, you succeeded only in stage managing one of the most pitiful bungles in the history of the world, if not the worst. Further, your governments have shown themselves successively incapable of ruling and have handed over effective control of the country to trade unions, who appear to be directed, dedicated to the principle of doing less and less work for more money. This feather bedding... And This shirking of an honest day's work is sapping at ever-increasing speed the moral fiber of the British, a quality the world once so much admired. In its place, we now see a vacuous, aimless horde of seekers after pleasure, gambling at the pools and bingo, whining at the weather and the declining fortunes of the country, and so on and so on and so on. And I thought that, that that is very ventriloquist to me. And... Fleming yeah. Fleming knows also. I mean, the, the whole Suez reference. Fleming was really friendly with Anthony Eden, the prime minister responsible, and who had a breakdown because of the Suez crisis. And so, you know, there's all kinds of really deliberate pigeonhole junk chat in here that is Fleming through and through. And it, it just, I don't know, like there's a lot of that with Tiger. And I kind of find him, yeah, he's fun and he's engaging. And I don't mind the story in Japan being led by him, but... <laughs> That type of stuff is just—I don't know—that stands out well, I, in a rather good chapter you know, for me as being unnecessary and very clearly the hand of the author coming through.
1: I concur with you, Scott. I, I really feel—I uh, really feel that way too. I felt that, like I think the, the the problem I think was there was there was there was too much uh, Tiger and and less Dicko. I think more Dicko in the storyline would have put a great balance. I think because it would have bought. I think it would have felt less like a less like a uh, uh, a guide to Japan through Tiger Tanaka as opposed to like Bond in Japan. You know, I yeah, think if exactly. Dicko had been in the storyline, was given more more prominence in the storyline, I think we could have experienced Japan in in the in the offside way that we do with other locales in Fleming's books. And to me, it just seems that Fleming just. Wanted to describe the, the the state of Japan and this political situation, its social situation, this great empire. You know, now ha- now humbled by you know by Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and uh, has to live in the atomic age. You know, like doing post-aggressive um, attacks in America through like monster movies. You know, and mm. and they have to basically take American culture and smile at it. Now they got the great revenge in, culturally later on when. They take American ideas and just sh- and shape them into their own original Japanese way and, and whatnot. But the great empire that it once was is now lost. Just the same as Fleming is feeling here, the great empire that was once England is now just another Western power, you yes, know?
0: Absolutely. And there is totally a kindredness between that. And I, and I don't for a second think... But it's, but don't it's want to too overt. It's not subtle. Mm-hmm. It's not subtle. That's the problem. It's not subtle, but maybe because it's still very fresh. I mean, we've got 50 years on the book, which is maybe more fresh to some of this takeover stuff than, well, it definitely is, than we now understand it. And so I, I, I'm I giving Fleming the benefit of the doubt here, and I'm not trying to be too critical at it, because I, I, I admire Fleming for even bringing it up. You know what I mean? Like, he he's going places with his with his writing that yeah. other writers just want to tell you a story about death and murder and sex. And I mean, I, he's not wanting to do just that he is. Yeah. And he is I traveling felt, and differently.
1: I couldn't, I couldn't, I, could I, I, that's why I think Bocher really had it out for Fleming because uh, it just seems to me that he's ignoring this aspect of Fleming's writing, you know, like he's ignoring it completely. Cause I haven't seen any other like thriller writer, like the way Fleming does uh, try to understand other cultures in, 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 in his own way. You know, like, I think that's, very progressive of him. But again, I, he didn't read The Only Land twice, right? So who knows what he thought of this book. Well, he, um,
0: he might have read it.
1: <laughs> he, oh, he might have read it but not reviewed it, you know? Oh, no. So, yeah. Maybe it's kind of like uh, Treebeard, you know, in like Lord of the Rings. It's like, you know, there is no word in, in, in English or French or Japanese or mm. or in all the tongues of man that can describe how much I hate this book. So I'm not going to bother reviewing it or something <laughs> like that, you know?
0: Probably. I think what you said earlier about, you know, Fleming's trip and the real Tiger, it's um, – Tiger is a good and necessary plot device. He he works. Do you know what I mean? He works very well. And he works well in the film. And there's parts of the film I don't really like. I find the film drags on too. It has a very, yeah. very mediocre midsection as far as I'm concerned. But um, I like – I like Tiger. He's just he's just a bit too much for me and I I don't like the fact that Fleming uses him um instead of giving me and I know I'm getting ahead here but I don't like the fact and I think he's I think Tiger unfortunately gets my criticism for this. He's punished because he's the one that I'm listening to instead of seeing Bond recover and get redeemed for what happened and and you know. Yes. And that that's what I don't like that about him, but that's not his fault, you know, like he, no but that, he just that, that's just Fleming
1: using him as a device to to wade through that stuff mm-hmm. that he didn't want to get into maybe Fleming just felt that at the time he didn't want to get to, to get into that aftermath maybe he felt he wanted to get back to him His he was health was so was waning as I talked about yeah he wasn't you know like he's had several heart attacks already you know like um a year later he would be in the hospital with pleurisy you know and that's ended up like going towards his death And it just seems to me that he didn't want to go into those darker waters and he wanted to get himself out of it. And Japan was the way that he could do that by embracing another culture and another idea or
0: philosophy and focusing on on that, I suppose. Yeah, you just can't help but wonder how, how the Blofeld trilogy would have played out had Fleming gone to write that travel log and to research Japan four years earlier. Because we would have had a totally different story. That maybe, maybe you only live twice as a standalone non Blofeld story it would have been a far more enjoyable book. Because he he would have given the Blofeld angle a different end. You know.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think the Blofeld and the Only Twice storyline works to an extent. I okay. think that part wasn't the problem. Okay. I think if, if if there was a balance of Dicko Henderson and Tiger in the storyline, mm, yeah. and Bond and Dicko were doing something, and and I don't know, maybe Dicko was an alcoholic, and his life was doing pretty shitty as well, yeah. and maybe Bond saw something of himself in him, and, and he into cool. himself reflectively, yeah. that would have been a lot more interesting, Yeah, you know, because yeah. – there's a reason why like someone in the military service, you know, and it will go ends up going to Japan and mm. and even if even even if even he's like in the Australian military and ends up in Japan as a liaison and I just and this and is and it's and he doesn't want to live a part of his own culture anymore. He's a gaijin living in Japan. Why not live in Australia? Why is he here? Because of his duty or because personal reasons? Yeah. I just think that could have been explored a lot better. And there's a movie to me that explored that in in, in a way is you know, years later. It's a Ridley Scott film called Black Rain with Michael Douglas. And I think Fleming could have used ideas from that story uh, about a man trying to redeem himself um, you know, for corruption in in, 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 uh, in in America and coming to Japan and having to face that corruption and within himself. I think that would have been a stronger aspect, would, 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 would have been a stronger um, thread line that, Fle- that Fleming could have used in New the twice.
0: Interesting point. Um, it's been years since I've seen Black Rain. I'm gonna have to maybe watch it again because great movie, man!
1: Great, yeah. great, great '80s action, late '80s action
0: movie. You don't get better than that. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I will. You know, I'll try to make yeah. some time in my schedule before uh, Christmas holidays to watch that. I'm sure, I can find. And it. also, t-
1: and also too the um, the uh, the. Uh, Japanese like um, officer that you know that's that's Michael Douglas's li- 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 liaison in Tokyo. Um, he's kind of a Tanaka like character actually. Okay, um, cool. But 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 you know again, but visually though we have Ridley Scott. You know he's telling the story to us, so we don't get exposition dump of Japan. We kind of just experience Japan. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So that's one of the great thing about the visual medium in that way. Now we're talking about you know Tiger and how he's the exposition bot. But I do think that some of the chapter, the, some of the passages that Fleming gives Tiger have a really great poignancy to them. This is one here uh, to him talking about the um, Kamikaze pilots of World War II. You know, the ones that wore the samurai scarves and and flew their planes into American aircraft carriers and everything like that, right? So it's a bit of a, a, bit, a little bit of a passage, but you know, I think it's worth the read in terms of the exposition that uh, Fleming uses here. I think he does it quite eloquently. Um not endlessly bitterly eloquent, you know, but hmm. Oh that could be debated. Tiger bowed low. Shimata, I am in error. I have been pressing you hard. It is my duty to entertain a friend as well as instruct a pupil. Lift your glass, Bondosan, until you do so the girl will not pour. Right. Now you ask me about the kamikaze. Tiger rocked backwards and forwards, and his dark assassin's eyes became introspective. He didn't look up at Bond. He didn't look up at Bond. He said it was nearly twenty years ago. Things were looking bad for my country. I had been doing intelligence work in Berlin and Rome. I had been far from the air raids and even farther from the front line and every night when I listened to the radio from my homeland and heard the bad news of the slow but sure approach of the American forces, island by island, airstrip by airstrip, I paid no attention to the false news of the Nazis, but thought only that my country was in danger and that I needed to defend it. Tiger paused, and the wine turned sour in my mouth, and the girls turned cold in my bed. I listened to the accounts of this brilliant invention, the corpse of Kamikaze. That is the divine wind that saved my country from invasion by Kublai Khan in the 13th century by destroying his fleet. I said to myself that that was the way to die. No medals, total death, suicide if you like, but an enormous cost to the enemy. The technique was simple. Anyone can learn to pilot a plane. The escorts of fighter planes led to the attack. It was then just a question of aiming yourself at the largest ship, preferably an aircraft carrier that was bringing planes to the islands to attack the homeland. You got the ship lined up below you, and you went to the, for the flight deck and, and the lift, which is the heart of a carrier. Pay no attention to the bridge on the, or the waterline. They are heavily armored. Go for the vulnerable machinery of the flight deck. You understand? Tiger was completely sent. He was back there again, fighting the war. Bond knew the symptoms. He often visited this haunted forest of memory himself. He lifted his glass. The kneeling girl bowed and poured. Bond said, "Yes, go on, Tiger." I forced the Kempeitai—that's the Japanese secret service—to ex- they're kind of like the Gestapo during the war—to um, accept my resignation, and I returned to Japan and more or less bribed my way into a kamikaze training squadron. They were very difficult to get into. All of the youth of the nation seemed to want to serve the emperor in, his, in this way. At this time, we were running out of aircraft, and we were forced to use the more difficult Baku. That was a small plane made mostly of wood with a thousand pounds of explosive in the nose. A kind of flying bomb. It had no engine, but was released from below the belly of a fighter bomber. The pilot had a single joystick for controlling direction. Tiger looked up. I can tell you, Bondosan, that it was a terrible and beautiful thing to see an attack wave going off. These young men in their pure white ships and with the ancient white scarf that was the badge of the samurai bound round their heads running joyfully for their planes as if they were running to embrace a loved one. The roar of the engines of the mother planes and the takeoff into the dawn or into the setting sun towards some distant target that had been reported by spies or intercepted on the radio. It was as if they were flying to their ancestors in heaven, as indeed they were, for of course none ever came back who were captured.
0: Hmm. He's he's very clear and proud about where he comes from and later on i mean that passage continues doesn't it and he goes on and talks about his dreams and one of his biggest dreams is to be able to take down not just the enemy but the the thousands of tons of enemy steel and life that have gone into that creation and i mean that that's all cool stuff it is nice writing i would never dispute that and this is fleming wanting to tip his hat to the culture that now, you know a lot of people, particularly wartime in the West, were shunning. And I mean, think about the Japanese internment camps in, in Canada as well as anywhere else. You know, I mean, it it wasn't yes. it wasn't a happy a happy and um, well, I don't know, fucking just treatment of uh, of these these people. But I'm just saying that that's that important to have, note that though doesn't have a lot. We of look at time ju- in this we look story. at Japan, you know. For its anime and its video
1: games and its culture compared to our own and stuff, but you have to realize these people came from the 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 feudal Japan, the 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 warrior code Bushido, samurai. You know these people. You know, like just like this is nineteen sixty sixties when this book takes place, and as at twenty years before, the people that Bond is encountering here, these were of these were Axis powers. You know what I mean? So it's very important, you know, to understand that. It, you know that I think that which Fleming does, and I think it's kind of a nice nod to that whole scene with the German and uh, German officer. The, sorry, the Luftwaffe pilot, taxi driver, in Unimagined secret service, where it's just camaraderie, regardless, regardless, of nation you're part of. The, the, I guess the, uh, the the global band of brothers, I guess you could call
0: it. I don't disagree with you, Josh. I really don't. But and I think you're right. You know, I think you and Fleming would be good to have a drink together, because you both got a heart on for this stuff. And I tell you what, I don't think it doesn't belong in this story. But, I mean, I don't think you can put these two, him, Tiger Tanaka, and the Luftwaffe pilot... I love the way the Luftwaffe pilot was used in those brotherhood-type ways. I just don't need 150 pages of this stuff in a book where I want to see Bond redeem himself and have revenge. You know, like, I, I don't think I need to read about the kamikaze for four and a half pages... Like, I get that it's an important part of the Japanese cultural history. I just don't think it belongs in this book. I think it belonged in his travelogue.
1: Yeah, maybe the whole thing is maybe Japan wasn't the best place to end Blofeld's, you know, reign of terror. You know, maybe it just, maybe someplace, maybe it's more of like, uh, maybe in the end it would have been better for Blofeld to end his, you know, his life, you know, in a... In a- in a, in a place that i guess didn't ha- didn't need to have so much exposition and i felt like i guess Fleming felt that i'm going to go to japan i'm going to learn i'm going to put what i learned about it in there and i want i want i want i want to, I want to show people its differences and its and its, its eccentricity to compare to the rest of the world and maybe that wasn't the best storyline well that's what um, i said maybe a minute wasn't ago, right that was the
0: best right? locale that's what i said for, for like, this storyline if fleming had written a a one standalone Bond story like he did with Dr. No or something else. If he had done that trip to Japan five years earlier, I think we wouldn't have a Blofeld story here and Blofeld here in Japan. Like this is the story that's been culminating after two, uh, two chapters of this, this stretched out narrative about, and I mean, he's lost his wife for Christ's sake. I mean, this is, this is the book where we want to see Bond back on form. And instead he sets him, in a story that's so convoluted because Fleming obviously wants to write a book about Japan, but he writes a Bond story in yeah. Japan. And that, that, he, he tries to do two books in one and we don't get the revenge story. We don't get to see the broken man of Bond get himself back into working shape. And really, I mean, Bond only has one bit of revenge chat in here. That's it. That's it. One. He only has one little yeah, moment where he's one. like, Blofeld, I'm going to get him back for what he did. And I'm like, what? I read a book about what he did. Like, you got to give me more than that. Anyway, look, I- I'm conscious of time, dude, and I'm conscious of us really milking the tits here out of Tiger. Yeah. I want to move on and talk about the other characters and the Allies and Adversaries. Are-, are you cool with that?
1: I am definitely cool with that. And, uh, no, I-, I-, I definitely agree. I just thought it was a great passage, read. To re- just to represent Fleming's writing, and, and the, which is still pretty strong, but I felt that I agree with you. It, this type of exposition, while it is wonderful to read about, and you know, you get appreciation of, of, of Fleming's own appreciation of Japanese culture and society, it it, it's, it does not work, I think, in the narrative that Fleming was
0: trying to give us. No, it doesn't, and I I agree with you on that. Dico Henderson, yeah, should I think he could have played a far more interesting role here in this story. I yes. think he could have been a guide for half of it, and Tiger maybe could have had a more, maybe Tiger could have had more of like a um, a mentor uh, role, like along the perimeter kind of role. Yeah, exactly. Role you know, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, I like, yeah. I liked M, now- and, and I can't help but wonder in this book, you know. In the past, M has shown himself, if you think about Thunderball, to be a pretty shrewd man and and a hell of an effective prognosticator because he knew that the bombs, he, he guessed that they would be in the Bahamas when nobody else was even looking there. And did he sniff? Like, did he really think that they didn't have intel on this stuff? Like... Did he sniff Blofeld out in any of this? I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that M wouldn't know that That's the Japanese I already had his intel line. I find it hard to believe that M wouldn't know that Tiger already yeah. knew about the Blue Route. So for me, I'm thinking that he's sending Bond to Japan because somewhere he knows that there's this dude, Shatterhand, who might be a hell of a lot like Blofeld, and maybe, maybe there's some backroom chat going on between M and Tanaka, and he, they're and, all setting Bond yes. up for this. I don't know. I would like because if you notice,
1: yeah, I think that is. I think that's a a little kind of subtle. uh, 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 Sorry, yeah, that is a really good point that you make out there. Like, if the fact that M knew that Shatterhand was Blofeld, and that M found the best way for him to get over his situation was to send him to Japan, but at the same time, though, I kind of got. I like. I like the sort of thread that I picked up, I don't know if you did, when we were speaking to Sir James Moloney, the neurologist, uh-huh. you know, it seems like M has, he conveys to Moloney that he is ready to drop Bond for his post-widowing mistakes, like cut the cord, as you said, completely, right? But I really think that he was coming to Moloney in desperation because he didn't know what to do with his best agent and a person I think that he's a lot closer to than he would admit, personally. And he revealed his distress um, with with um, well, through his professional callousness towards what he would do with Bond, um, who is an underperforming uh, agent who is useless to him, right? So he went to see Moloney so that Moloney could convince him to give Bond a second chance, and so M does give him that second chance. Yeah, what do you does. think about? Yeah,
0: I and mean, he does it yeah. under under Moloney's um, you know uh, request. Really, he's the one that tells him to do it. But I mean. I don't, I don't. I mean, I like Maloney's character. I like the way he works in the plot. I don't think he's, you know, really that important but to go into. He they have a nice chat. He and M. And I think that the fact shows... that he goes to speak to, to
1: he goes to speak to Maloney, the fact that it's even shown in the book to me, it kind of might, you know, disassemble that whole notion of the of M knowing that Shatterhand was yeah. was uh, Blofeld, uh, because it it, it it indicates that he wanted to give Bond a second chance to complete this mission and get you know that that blue route, you know.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, we we can play this back and forth all day. At the same time, yes. M M could still have known or suspected that Blofeld was involved but wanted to have sent a better agent just to close the deal, but instead, wanted to know if his agent was capable of a big challenge. Yeah.
1: Let's look at the other uh, allies we have here. So so we so we... For example, also, there's Mary Goodnight, who's kind of basically Lilia 2.0 again. Yeah, she um,
0: doesn't do it really anything except fawn over Bond in a couple scenes. It's nice to see her have that moment where she's worried about him while he's in uh, Queen Mary's Rose Garden and all that stuff in, in uh, Regent's Park in London, and it's clear that she cares about him. And I, I believe she becomes a bigger player in the next novel, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, which we'll be moving on to shortly. But The, the last novel, I'll think about it. Yeah, it's the last novel, but it's um the next one in the series that we have to read. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean I, I liked her there, but one look, character I, mean, I kinda liked was Yeah, one character I
1: kinda liked also was the police superintendent. Um, I thought he was very good at his job. I liked his reaction to Bond's unbeknownst to anyone else, you know, that he recognizes Shatterhand and Blofeld, uh Shatterhand as Blofeld. And then, you know, I think it was a nice touch to illustrate that officer's discipline and his professionalism, that he was good at his job. And of course, he's the guy that he—he's like he's related to the family of Kissy Suzuki, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought he was a nice—he was he was a, he was a, a nice a, a addition to the to the storyline. Um, uh, I, and the priest in Kissy's family, there wasn't really a lot of description on the Shinto priest. He went along with the situation because, and he made sure that culturally, that Bond would be protected in that community. Um.
0: I guess we're just going to dive into the adversaries, I suppose. Yeah, the, I mean, the guys that you're citing, are they're there, but they're so functional as to be, I mean, they are really the true cardboard of the story, in my opinion. They don't they don't have any yes. character that they show off. Uh, part of it is the Stoic uh, Shinto religion that we don't get to see their personalities, but realistically, Fleming doesn't care about them. He, he needs to use them to wallpaper the scenes and kind of strengthen the cover that bond is under but i don't think they're important i mean I, we, we're almost 30 minutes talking about these these adversaries and allies we we got to move into blofeld and Irm yes bond. i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna be quick with blofeld and i'm gonna be harsh um he's almost non-existent in this story um more non-existent almost than he was in thunderball he's effectively a baddie in the castle who has very few scenes and unfortunately for my take at least Despite being spread over three books, Blofeld isn't as interesting a villain as some of the one-offs that we've had in this franchise. I was really hoping for more here. Really? Yes. Truly? He only features in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Thunderball, he's the puppet master, I guess you could say. Kind of out of sight. Yes. And here he shows up only to die. I like the character. I love the description I got of him at that first Spectre meeting back in Thunderball. But I don't like how Fleming chose to use him here. Um, I've made a note later on when I talk about the narrative that I really want to get into with the Blofeld, but I thought he was wasted here. And Irma Bunt, who was pretty yes. cool in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, an absolute wasted shell of what she was in that book. I found yes. her... I found her... Uh, she's useful only as... She seems to tip Blofeld off that this is the Englishman, this is Bond, and he doesn't believe it until he gets the confession out of him. So she's clever in spotting Bond and recognizing him, um, but Blofeld is nothing more than like a construction foreman in this book for me, walking around in, in ridiculous uh, samurai kit because he's afraid of getting uh, allergies from his own plants. He, he's boring to within an inch of his life, and I'm really pissed off let down, I should say. I don't have that much stake in this. I'm let down that this is the book that he dies in and this is how he dies. It's all a little anticlimactic for me because I don't even care by the time Bond gets to the top of the castle. I don't even care that, like, I know there's 40 pages left in my book and I know I'm not going to be happy with how they play out. And I'm feeling like, okay, whatever. Let's just get to the end of the book now. I wanted Blofeld in this story 80 pages sooner. He wasn't. And that disappointed me. So for me, Blofeld, meh.
1: Yeah. I'm good like Dracula plus Samurai. I mean, he almost, Fleming gives him like mustachios. Like, he has a, when, that's how Bram Stoker depicted Dracula, like in the original novel. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He's just a mess of contradictions, over the top villainy. Fleming even gives him a Hitler screeching voice at times when he's talking to his Japanese minions, the Black Mask minions. Now, those guys were kind of creepy. You know, with like their white, their mask goes and their sticks to prop a lot of people into prana pan, pl- into prana um, into into prana ponds and throw them in the and stuff like that because they won't commit suicide or making mm-hmm. sure that they do. You know, like the suicide clinic assistants and I, I found those guys were kind of interesting, but they were poorly developed as well. And Irma Bunt was like an afterthought she hardly has any moments whatsoever and she gets knocked out with a stick and then she wakes up and then she, I guess she she dies when the, um, when the geyser blows off and destroys the, uh, the castle.
0: Totally. Yep.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. As a whole, I'm like, well, I will disagree though. I did like the idea. I did, I did find that Clayton was particularly ballsy when he gave Bold Lofeld the samurai armor um, in the sense of that, like, he he managed to justify it in that he you know so that the 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 poisonous plants and stuff wouldn't affect him, and it helped him bring these other guys, uh, these black masko guys, uh, you know, to work with him, the black dragon people, and so I kind of believed that in a sense. Uh, that was effective and gave him kind of a at least an aesthetic villainy, but again, such a contradiction. I mean, where were the hints that Blofell was a was a major Orientalist, you know, like in Honor of Magic Secret Service? Like was there a nod that like when Blofell before he walked into the um before he walked into like the the um it, uh, meeting room in Thunderball that he w- opened up his bathrobe and he had like a tattoo of a dragon on his back or something or he had a samurai sword on his wall at Piss Gloria. There was no nod whatsoever to any, any orientalism. There's because had the a left field that all of a sudden he's like James Clavell Shogun here, you, 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 you know, and <laughs> and how he can expertly hack and slash with a samurai sword, you know, and I, I just don't that came out of nowhere to me. Like this guy just basically becomes whatever idealistic kind of the du jour of whatever region that he's in you know it's yeah. just uh, just inconsistent inconsistent and visually an interesting idea but it's
0: yeah. poorly executed and all of these changes uh, in his such character happen in eight months just a, it's eight appointments we've been doing this series longer than Blofeld has killed bond. And in eight months, he's become a Japanese samurai who is also a botanist, and I mean, it's just total
1: and has, has, has plastics surgery as well, right? Like yeah. uh, the syphilitic nose repaired, and the, and the earlobes, and all that sort of stuff.
0: And anyway, I gave um, adversaries and allies a middling three.
1: I'm three. I'm three, I'm three on adversaries and allies. That's hmm. I'll give it. All right. Well, some good subtle moments. But Blofeld and Irma Bun really brought it down for me. So I'm, I'm three.
0: There we are. Time to move on to the narrative, Josh. Uh, this is going to take – not it's not going to take us a lot of time really, but I do think that it might be the biggest part of the angle. So um, do you want in to – In case you
1: didn't read between the lines, not both of us did not care much for the narrative in this story.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I, –
1: well, I guess I'll go into my perspective of the narrative because uh, I think you definitely have something really dripping with venom over there that you really want to lace into so <laughs> no,
0: I'm not I'm not like a, a puff adder here ready to spit out. I mean, I got no venom really. It's not like <laughs> that it's it's just that I think maybe you know we've done this now eleven times and I, I don't think I've been clearer on how I feel about a narrative than I am right now because I feel like for me personally, the bones of this narrative were, were pretty transparent. And, um, I'm, I'm comfortable. In fact, more confident maybe than in, in some of the other episodes about how I feel with this story. So you, you go ahead and give me your two cents and then, and then I'll give you mine.
1: Okay. Sounds good. All right. So I, in case you, again, just to reiterate, I think this is probably the weakest Fleming narrative, uh, of, of the of the major novels, like outside of the short stories, this is probably the, the weakest Fleming novel for me. Now, I wasn't a fan of Dr. No's incredibly uh, surreal adventure in some parts, but I, I still think Dr. No is a stronger book than this particular one. At least in Dr. No, he dealt with the aftermath of From Russia with Love in a, in a constructive way that worked well into the story world, despite how ridiculous the story got. In um, this book here... It, it's one of the weakest narratives because after OHMSs, I would expect a little tension. Um, uh, but the story for Bond to redeem himself and not revenge himself was an intriguing but ultimately failed endeavor. In that respect, um, the case against Shatterhand is so poorly constructed; it just seems this like it's one of those moments where you know people were, were some of the critics and even me and you were questioning about how the serendipity that occurs in Bond in Bond novels uh-huh. where. The idea of like some some side thing that Bond is doing ends up being part of the major narrative. That you know, playing bridge with Drax and Blades will all of a sudden end up him foiling a world domination scheme out of nowhere. And this here is just the fact that like both Bond is sent to Japan to recover his, I guess, his prowess in terms of being a secret agent for MI6. M wants to make sure that you know he had he's worthy of his double O stat- status again and wants him to redeem himself. Um, with this case after all the drinking and feeling sorry for himself after the Tracy incident. And so he sends Bond to Japan to work this operation, to try some diplomatic finesse to a a really hard, impossible mission, basically. And just how... uh, damn fistedly he puts Blofeld back into the narrative. And I know we were talking about the possibility that M knew that Blofeld was and Shatterhand were actually the same person I feel that if Fleming might have telegraphed that a bit stronger in the narrative that M did know and they could somehow make that a kind of a twist I think it would have made off for a much more it would resonate a lot stronger you know what I mean
0: I do and I agree with you um and I I, I agree with your use of the expression ham-fisted too because it did feel pretty clunky but again I'm interrupting so over to you
1: yeah yeah, I know. Like you kind of you kind of came up with that kind of like fan-wank kind of concept about the something didn't make sense in the storyline and you wanted to make sense yourself. You're putting pieces together in your own mind. Yeah. Unfortunately, like this, when you, when you have a text in front of you and if the evidence is not laid bare that that theory isn't in, is in the novel, then it's a weak it's a weak it's a weakness on the novel's part, you know, not on your part. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like uh, the, the case against Shatterhand was so poorly constructed that he's in, that he's basically Blofeld all of a sudden to basically t- it almost felt, felt like Fleming's like okay this Shatterhand guy is Blofeld and guess what we're I'm going to tie out the Blofeld narrative out of nowhere. There was no like Bond chasing down Blofeld across the ends of the earth you know going rogue against MI6 and I think the plot of License to Kill in many aspects would have worked better for I, for You Only Live Twice. Like, can you imagine, like, the storyline we have, like, in the movie The license, license to Kill put into, like, Japan and Bond chasing B- 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 Blofeld all across Japan just to hunt him down and, you know, and I don't know. That would have been a lot more interesting to me anyway.
0: Yeah, I, I, can, um, see, I can see where you're going. Like, Bond is more bent on revenge and he has a confrontation with M who rescinds his um, – who rescinds his – Double O status, yeah. Double O status because to kill. He, he he doesn't trust what he's. Yeah, I think that yeah, you might be onto something. Could be something good there.
1: Yeah, I I, I, def, I definitely agree. That's why I think the potential of the storyline kind of has a bit of remake possibility on, on a film with on, on a film basis only, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, like the story only gives. Get, only really gains momentum once Bond realizes that Shatterhand is Blofeld. Because then at least we get, like, the spark of deviousness in him that, like, he's not going to tell anyone that it's Blofeld, only to him that he'll know that he killed Blofeld. Because if he tells Tanaka that Bond, that uh, Blofeld, and Shatterhand are the same person, that Airpool will be involved, and then yeah. any chance of his... Not only getting revenge against Blofeld, but also failing the mission uh, as as well, getting the Magic 44, all of that would, would have fallen apart completely, right? Because yeah. why would Japan hand, hand England this... This uh, boon when they when Blofeld when Blofeld is already when Shatterhand is already exposed to be a, um, uh, a, dif- a different person in, entirely, and then therefore he's he's actually an enemy citizen, and a, it makes it easier for the Japanese government to shut his oper- operation down. You know what I mean?
0: That's true. Yes.
1: And and Bond would never get his not would he would complete neither would he complete his mission, but he also wouldn't get his revenge either.
0: Yeah, and I, I like that part. I think that makes total sense that, if, that to if me, we the story had a revenge was, story.
1: That was the clicking on that after all this, to- all of this Tiger Tanaka exposition that I, you know, that I sort of not suffered through, but, you know, I put up with um, to this. I thought, OK, finally, we're building into something. And then all of a sudden we have the AMA sequence. And, you know, we actually got a good travelogue going there with Bond meeting Kissy and then the AMA girls diving and the description of the islands and the castle itself. And there's some really vivid imagery, you know, in that narrative. And it seemed it could work, but then it just, again, it's that ham-fistedness of all those different concepts at one crucial scene in the climax and just kind of just kinda like, just sputters uh, in, in this respect. Um, like the gothic narrative of the castle and the interlude with Kissy, it built up this tension. But then Kissy was so sexualized in in her description that the strength of her character was undercut. Um, it made me feel that Fleming wanted Bond to get out of the widow the widow doldrums and back to womanizing again, or he thought the viewer the, the reader would prefer that anyway.
0: Yeah, he thought um,
1: that. Yeah, thus Bond he regresses instead of grows, and things begin to retrend and the character becomes more of a cricketure of itself. Um, the interlude with David, I, I grant, was actually had some whimsy to it. Some of the it was one of those weird, wonderful Fleming moments that you get every now and then. That worked out very well. And it did help build this in the suspense of building up to the biggest big thing, thing thing on the castle, the biggest assault on the this the, the, the um, climb up the castle wall and the the intrigue inside the castle that was all built up pretty well. but then again it just kind of let's just say that like the fumarole or the geyser <laughs> it I don't know it kind of it kind of spurt more than it's you know blew, blew the roof for me to get out of this really uh, awkward euphemism. Um, (laughs) to me, the whole of this, the whole section at the castle is the highlight of the story. Uh, it has this Dr. No levels of madcap insanity, um, Fleming running off the ridiculousness of Blofeld and samurai kit with the need to protect himself outside from the assassins and the poisonous plants. I think, as I mentioned before, it's a ballsy move on his part and he, and it works to an extent. Um, however, Blofeld being proficient with a sword, as well as Orientalism, coming out of nowhere, no, no telegraphing of this whatsoever in the Blofeld trilogy whatsoever. Um, even the fight and showdown, there wasn't really any blood pumping moment or anything. Like it, it just wasn't like it, it was like there was no Teddy Ted between Blofeld and Bond. Even if even though there was, it was just kind of like Bond just didn't say a word. He just let Blofeld talk and talk and talk and talk. There was no kind of like you know like. Uh, uh, Oberyn Martel or Anigo Montoya in Princess Diaries going like, you killed my wife, prepare to die. Yeah. Princess Diaries, sorry, the Princess Bride. Uh, you know, you know, <laughs> you killed my wife, prepare to die. You know what I mean? Like there just wasn't that catharsis. It wasn't satisfying at all. And it's too bad because it seemed like it, it could build up. And if it had built up to a very satisfying catharsis, I would have had a much satis- a much more satisfying impression of the novel as a whole. And then all of a sudden he turns to Errol Flynn and cuts the ropes of the dirigible and just flies off, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's like D'Artagnan or something. It's just.
0: He's like uh, uh, just, Seahawks.
1: And, and then, you know, we get almost to like early season 24 levels of ridiculousness with the whole amnesia plot line, you know? And it just seemed. And he just kind of. The whole point is just to create a cliffhanger, just to have. Uh, a reason for people to go on to the next book. It's such a low point in comparison. It's eye rolling, you know. Um, he's so him being de- dependent on cliffhangers at this stage to keep his readers guessing and, and even interested. It's in acts of desperation, either on his side or on the editor publisher's side. Uh, two final score
0: two. Final score two. Hey, eh? well, <clears throat> we we agree on some of these points that. Um, that you cite, and I, I'm i going to try my best not to... I'm going to try my best not to uh, repeat much of what you said, but um, a two, yeah? Well, wow, that, that does kind of surprise me, that... Um...
1: I was really thinking of 2.5, but I don't know, just over the overall disappointment just really looms over it, and and two. I give a two for the Gothic castle structure and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I really found that really cool. I think that funny. could have been pulled... I think it could have been pulled off in a much better way. Yeah. And, like, I would love to see, you know, like, uh, if they decided to, to like, for Craig to end his own Blofeld trilogy remake and you only live twice and they do a castle sequence, I can see Sam Mendes rocking the shit out of that, you know?
0: Well, I don't know if you were... uh, What a stupid question or observation. Of course you are following this stuff. Um, Sam Mendes has canceled his project. What was his latest project? Some sort of... um,
1: store or, or, like an independent art film he was yeah. working on
0: or? yeah but I'm trying to remember the subject uh, I just read it today <clears throat> shit anyway he's cancelled his project to direct and I wonder if that is opening up his you know black book it- for a Bond film I certainly hope it isn't because we need Really, really. I mean, after Spectre, we need a new Martin Campbell type approach. We need to bring back that real serious action with a real serious score. We need somebody who knows what they're doing there. Now, I mean, the art house Bond is gone. You saw him. Yeah. Try, you saw Inspector him try to bring action to art house, and it didn't really work. Um, no, Skyfall was great because it was more texture. It was more theme. You know, this is this lot, most recent one. Uh, Spectre was a bit of a. Well, a bit of a letdown action, yeah. us, but anyway, we, we digress. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think
1: just, just just to end this little discussion regarding the film, a possible Bond film, you know, and I think You Only Live Twice uh, remake would be an actual really good idea to end the Blofeld tri- trilogy or even the Craig storyline as a whole. Mm-hmm. I don't um, disagree with that, yeah. Yeah, and I think someone like, uh, I know, for example, there's a couple of directors that really wanted to do a Bond film. I heard that Christopher Nolan... Has always wanted to do a Bond film, and I, th- I think he would be a good blend of action and visuals that they, they, that they could definitely use. Well,
0: Spielberg wanted to do a Bond film for a long time. Yeah, you
1: know, but... I, I remember that Spielberg too, eh? Yeah, yeah, and well, Tarantino even said he wanted to do one as well. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, How that would I'm, go. I don't know. <laughs>
0: I've just cut out a couple little sections here. What I'm going to say with my narrative, but okay. Here's, here's yeah. my narrative, okay? Here's what i got to say for the narrative. And I'll, I'll try not to... Make, because I've written stuff out, I'll, I'll try not to make it too much like a, like a lesson. You know what I mean? Like a, a lecture, but... A sermon? A sermon, yeah. <laughs> um, so interject where you want to contribute ideas or comment on what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I like... Okay, like, I, I like the premise. I think it's attractive. I don't mind starting the story off in Japan. I, you know, I think it's good. And I like flashing back to see how close Bond is to to being let go since Tracy's death. All of this at the beginning feels right. Um, although it's a rock-paper-scissors thing, which I suppose could be considered as a metaphor for just how, I don't give a shit, Fleming has come with his whole gambling scenes. Like, he can't even be arsed to have a proper game. He's just <laughs> having these guys do rock-paper-scissors. Well, I'm still going with it, because I think it's fun. But, my, I mean, my biggest, my biggest bother here is that, you know we don't get a revenge tale, nor do we see Bond recover. We're just simply meant to go along with the action of this Japanese story and feel compelled to believe that he's in a better place. And for me, Josh, after what I felt to be a rather poignant ending of On Our Majesty's Secret Service, we want to see Bond recover. We want to see his fight for revival. What you said a minute ago was absolutely correct. At the end of From Russia With Love, we get a bridge into the beginning of Dr. No, which is a, a, a ridiculous book. We both agreed that it was fun, but it's a ridiculous book. We had closure on a serious event in this book, which is far more serious. Well, not more serious than Bond almost losing his life due to tetradotoxin poisoning, but it is still serious, the death of his wife. It's a tragic moment. And in, in this story, we want to see Bond recover. And we want to see him get that redemption, that revenge. But most of all, we want him to care about his opportunity for revenge. In this story, yes. in this story, when he recognizes the picture uh, in, at the at uh, Tanaka's ninja camp, and he sees the intelligence, and he sees the photo of Blofeld, that is the only moment where he seems either bit interested in revenge. And I want to read that little paragraph, and it is just that a little paragraph from that section, because this is the only time where we. F- We get Bond talking about Blofeld, okay? Yeah. Um, So Tanaka says, But what is it, Bondo-san? Is it that you know these people? James Bond laughed. It was a laugh that grated. Even to Bond it sounded harsh and false in the small room. He had immediately made up his mind to keep his knowledge to himself. To reveal the true identity of Dr. Shatterhand would be to put the whole case back into official channels. The Japanese Secret Service and the CIA would swarm down to Fukuoka. Blofeld and Irma Bunt would be arrested. James Bond's personal prey would be snatched from him. There would be no revenge. Bond said, good lord, no. But I'm something of a physio... physiognomist. When I saw this man's face, it was as if someone had walked over my grave. I have a feeling that whether I succeed or not, the outcome of this mission is going to be a decisive one for one or the other of us. It will not be a drawn game. So the only sentence in that section is James Bond's personal prey would be snatched from him, there would be no revenge. That is the only moment in the entire text that the word revenge, the words personal prey, the idea of Bond getting retribution comes into this story. And for me, that is not just a letdown it is a massive oversight on the part of fleming i don't care yes. if he wants to i don't care if he wants to celebrate japan and his recent trip i don't care if he wants to show off everything he knows about gaijins and about the expat colonies and about you know the information trade routes and stuff like that i want a story where my character whose heart was broken 8 months ago and whose villain wasn't captured. I want some closure on this, and that's the only moment where Bond expresses any interest in doing this. He, when he kills Blofeld, he says, die, Blofeld, die, as he strangles him, and you could argue that strangling him with his own bare hands was very gruesome and very fitting for that type of revenge, but it was also the only, the only thing he had at his disposal were his two hands, and so what's he going to do, right? Anyway, just getting back into my general plan here. I mean, that that summarizes a lot of it for me, but one of my biggest beefs, right, with this story uh, uh, is how the narrative that I want to be reading as I've just detailed, is replaced with a travelogue of Japan and a bucket load of info dumps by Tiger on custom, tradition, gender, behavior. You see, in a 400-page novel, which is a stand-alone James Bond adventure, yes. I wouldn't mind this stuff. I would find it intriguing. But this is not the time... To drop all this info and the travel log this is no. the most pivotal moment in the character's arc when he's after revenge for Blofeld we know at the very beginning of this book and I find it hard to believe that a 1964 audience wouldn't know that this is Blofeld like it's Dr. Shatterhand but it isn't it's Blofeld like even without knowing that this is the Blofeld book you would know if you were a reader back then that this is Blofeld. And I'm really disappointed that it took Bond 160 pages to get a sniff of Blofeld in this. Like, there's all kinds of clues that Tiger gives him that would make him think that the guy he's been oh, yeah. the, for eight the, could be Oh, yeah, the hear.
1: reader knows that it's frigging them, like, way before Bond does. And I found that unbelievable. It, it was, was Fleming trying to demonstrate that... Uh, Bond was so, you know, sorry for himself in such a state that he just wasn't paying attention to those details. Like, 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 was was that trying to illustrate that he that he wasn't the secret agent he was anymore because he mm-hmm. couldn't pick up on those details? Yeah. Well, if, this be, if that's the kind of details that you need to be a secret agent, yeah. then, right. like to me, there were just alarm bells went off, and even in the first couple of hints, and even I and I didn't even know that that whole this person was going to be this person at the beginning. I pick I picked that up instantly. Yeah, of course, and. Uh, well, and also too, the, one of the problems about this, uh, this too is that at the very beginning we get that, as you say, that that trope of of uh, of learning what Bond what Bond did you know before he went on to this assignment and stuff. And the thing is that Fleming Fleming was this was the one book where Fleming did not need to have some like teaser of Bond in Japan and then have two chapters of explaining how he got there, you know, and and explaining those two chapters that that of how he got there. Uh, what he has been doing for the past eight months since Tracy died? To me, this should have it began with Bond in some bar, like in Casablanca, and like down in the bottle. You know what mm. I mean? And, and and MI6 looking for him, and we I, show us that depression yeah. Yeah. Yes. and that
0: state of mind. Yes, you know. Yes. I 100% agree. Show me Bond as a broken man, so that I can celebrate in his recovery. But I'd, we don't get any of that. We just get him playing paper rock scissors and drinking sake while he's getting bathed by naked Japanese women and he's all happy and he's not, he's not happy, but you know, it, it it is almost as ridiculous as that. Well, I mean, by the time Bond gets to Blofeld, we got about 45, I don't know what your text is like, but I got 45 pages left in my book and some of it, you know, I mean, that that sucks. That just blows for anybody, you know, 45 pages left. Anyway, some of this is good, it's necessary, right, in in Bond fiction. I mean, the best of Fleming stories focus on setting and they revel in these kind of foreign details, but this one really goes beyond the pale because of the timing of it all. The timing of this type of info dump doesn't fit with what the reader wants and what the reader needs for closure in this character. It drags the book down, it fills the place of Bond's recovery, which, as you just said, is what we really want to be reading about. And this brings me to the, uh, this, right? It seems as if... Fleming couldn't really be bothered developing his protagonist's arc and instead he just wrote a book which matched in with what was easily there about Japan wherein Bond was a character instead of a Bond book where he traveled to Japan. You know, it's almost like Japan's the character and Bond is the setting.
1: Yeah, uh, that's definitely it. It's Bond in Japan, not James James Bond in in a story that happened to be set in Japan.
0: Yeah, that's right, and I mean you know better than I do because you've you've done all the biographical research on on Fleming's illnesses. I mean I know what I know on the back of a postcard and what I can read in a book, but I mean it's it really feels to me like he's tired of writing and he's more interested in sharing pseudo interesting travelog points. Now maybe this is maybe this is actually key. Maybe he's excited about setting his story in a, in a in a place that not many Westerners know anything about, but. The majority of the novel just doesn't feel like a James Bond novel, and following Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it's a major letdown. Now, here's where I want to talk about pacing, and I'm interested. After I I read this out, uh, tell me what you think, okay? Because the pacing of the story, from my eyes, is greatly affected here. This is among the worst paced books in the entire series. The beginning is okay. I like it. The premise on intelligence and trading intelligence and Britain getting back up where America has kind of taken over. I like that stuff. The midsection is slow. It's distant. Even if some of the stuff is interesting, the tiger, you know.
1: (laughs) But it's so superficial in terms of uh, the momentum.
0: Yeah, exactly. And maybe part of this is coming as a condition of 2016, too, that Japanese characters that are so heavily developed in this story – or the Japan culture. I mean, we know this stuff about Japan now. It's a more common knowledge than it was when Fleming was writing. So I'm, I'm, trying, yes. to give, I'm trying to give Fleming credit as I as I bash this narrative a bit, because I'm aware that his readers wouldn't have, wouldn't, wouldn't really have known Japan the way a modern person in today's world would. And they would have swam more hungrily, maybe through that foreign appeal, if I can call it that, But I just feel like he's trying way too hard here. Like, I do appreciate and acknowledge the bias that we've got from today. But come on, man, to make 140 pages of this stuff? Like, there's 140 pages between when Bond leaves London and Bond first sniffs out that it's... um, You know, he first makes his moves to establish his cover. And that really... That really drives off the rails the three R's, you know, the recovery, the revenge, and the reclamation that we want to see. Um, Yeah, I don't want to repeat myself, but I I will say this last point about pacing, right? Um, Just consider everything that happens in the closing pages. Immediately following Blofeld's death, and I'm going to list it out because it's ridiculous to think that the last 45 pages include this. (laughs) Blofeld's death. Bond's obituary. Bond losing his memory and his sex drive. Kissy acquiring frog sweat and lizard powder. Drugging Bond's food. Bond recovering sexually. Kissy falling pregnant. Bond recovering physically on the island. Regaining his strength. All of his Russian memories. And he leaves to meet his past life. I mean, all of that in 45 pages. I got kids in my higher English class that wouldn't structure a fucking novel like that. <laughs> really, I mean, yes. that's a shit ton of happening stuff. And it's all ensconced. Really, I'm giving them credit. Because... It's not even forty-five pages. And that, 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 all of that, with the exception of Blofeld's death, that's eighteen pages of my book, Josh. All that stuff I just said—eighteen pages, eighteen of pages, enormous, yeah, character excessive development in eighteen pages. And I mean, I, and and do I really need five pages of plant information? Like, yeah. don't talk to me about all the poisonous plants and give me lists after lists. Oh, list yeah. of all the shit that's I, I in honestly, Blofeld's garden. I,
1: I stopped reading halfway through those, to be honest with you.
0: Well, I didn't. I read it all. But detailing every species of foreign poison botanical that sh- Shatterhand has brought into the country? Jesus, we don't need that kind of verisimilitude, do we?
1: Not in a Bond novel, no. And he, it's very clear that he he's not really going for verisimilitude. I just want to read this to you. It's from the uh, You the Twice uh, era. And this is him talking about the ending of the, of the book of You the Twice. My dear Michael... Thank you very much for the, um, for the heartwarming letter, which gave me immense pleasure as I feared that you had, you had all my jib at the amount of travelogue in the book. But I also privately feel that it makes a good change from the usual formula. And I'm glad that you feel the interest of the background made up for having to wait for the action so long. Mm. I was also doubtful about the 500 feet and we can easily cut it down. He's referring to... The 500 feet of Bond falling into the sea when he falls from the the hot air balloon, from the helium balloon? yeah. 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 Please ring me as soon as possible and discuss the ending because I have some doubt about it, not the least of which is that I have no idea how to get him from Vladivostok back into his early life. If I have the energy and inventiveness to pursue his career further.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting stuff, and that's why that's such a great resource to have because, I mean, here we are talking about it, and he's having doubts about what he's writing at the same time. He should have trusted his instincts.
1: I think he should have, but I think he was wrong about the experimentation. It never works well with him. You should read the the letters and the, and the responses like in this in the, in the Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, s- mm. section. He was very dismayed by the criticism that he got from that book. Very dismayed. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you recall, he even decided to not have, like, one publishing house not publish his book. He wanted a smaller one to publish his book.
0: Well, you couldn't even access, you couldn't get a paperback copy of this book until after his death, because he wanted The Spy Who Loved Me out, didn't he? Yeah, Yeah, Pan
1: Books did not not have The Spy Who who Loved Me as part of their uh, collection.
0: Anyway, uh, I'll just finish off here my narrative point. Mm -hmm. Um... And the perfect metaphor hit me, and I don't know if you agree with, well, it was perfect for me. I mean, it wasn't perfect for everybody. It was perfect for me, right? Okay, to reach a climax, right, we don't need all this kind of crap. That's basically what I've been saying. But I don't mind reading five pages of plant stuff if it's going to pay off somehow. But the only payoff I get with the plants is this dude who has a swollen face as he goes to commit suicide because obviously he touched one of them leaves. Like, that's it. <laughs> That's all they get.
1: Exactly. It's not exactly Shekhov's gun, is it?
0: No, it's not. And so, you know, in terms of Blofeld, in the narrative, I'm not talking about him as a character now. I'm talking about him in terms of narrative structure. This whole thing plays like a level from Mario Brothers for me. And let me explain what I mean from like the old NES. You remember the old a- <laughs> oh
1: boy, I'm because it. I'm feeling it now. I'm like where this is going. Because
0: well, you know, or some other game where the boss appears at the end of the level, right? It's In just, the castle. Yeah, it's just formula. Well, I didn't, I didn't actually think even about the castle and the lava, but that's a perfect example. Um, I was just thinking about these games, these platform games where you, you do something, all kinds of things, and then you just, you just have to beat a boss at the end of it anyway, and so. Formulaically, the boss needs to be battled. Blofeld in this book has about as much interest for me as Bowser does in Mario Brothers. He's some pain in the ass that just needs to be killed in order to move on. Because by the time I get to page 160, I understand that this ain't a revenge story anymore. Regardless of what Bond says in that one little excerpt that I I cited. This isn't about Bond and revenge, right? But uh, that, that brings me to this. Like, okay, what's... Waiting for Bond after he does kill Blofeld, at least in the at least in the the video game, right? The princess is there, and you suspect, um, immaturely perhaps, that Mario and the princess are off shagging somewhere. But you know, all Bond gets after he kills Blofeld is amnesia, a head injury, knocking up a Japanese ex Hollywood actress, and like, there's nothing in it for him. Like his revenge doesn't even lead him to anything good. So it's almost like Fleming punishes his protagonist for managing to gain something. And this book ends even worse than the last one. At least Bond has his senses with him when his wife passes away. Anyway.
1: Yeah, you showed it up know. pretty well there. I'd also know. add, you know, to your Mario allusion there, that uh, <laughs> think of the castle too, like geysers spurting up like from the bottom of the castle and, and like an oubliette, like a trapdoor and stuff. Like, what's yeah. next? Like a swamp coming down and crushing them or something? Like...
0: Yeah, I know. This This book has given me a brand new way to read the Mario Brothers games.
1: <laughs>
0: anyway, uh, last point. Okay, last point. Um, I, I've already mentioned how I think it's ridiculous that Bond doesn't sniff Blofeld out in any of this, but look, there are good scenes in this book and there are some really fun moments, right? I mean, I didn't mention, but I really did enjoy, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but I think the sections about on, you know, debt and the system of repaying honor in Japan, I think that's really cool. Like, I think... Uh, a modern hours and a then 1960s audience would have been really interested in that stuff because that, yes. that is cool writing and it's, it's done. It's done um respectfully. Like I like how Fleming talks about all of that, but these things ultimately for me are vignettes. They distract me from what I really want to see bond hardening again towards some purpose. Like I want to see bond harden. These things just distract me from it. They take pleasure away from the story because I don't want to read about Japan. I want to read about getting rid of Blofeld and Bond's own demons. But we don't get to see any of Bond's own demons here. And mm-hmm. if this was a standalone James Bond story, I would put it there alongside Dr. No and give it a three and a half, maybe a three narrative, because it would just be a standalone baddie at the end of the game, at the end of the boss level, as I said, right? But for because of the fact that this comes after... On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and it is meant to be the climax to and the solution of the Blofeld trilogy. Um, this is a massive narrative letdown, and I I respect that Fleming suspected that it could be. And I'm glad that you read that little bit out because it it allows me to say, okay, I, you know he, he was aware that this couldn't work 100% with everybody. But that doesn't change my mark. I gave, no. I gave the narrative of this story a
1: 1.5. Okay.
0: And I know okay. that I know that that's harsh. Like, I totally, totally get that that's harsh. Because I there were some good moments here. And I enjoyed reading parts of the story. Do you know what I mean? Like, I never felt like, oh, I got to read that again. And so, like, oh, I have to pick this up and finish it. It was never a chore to read the book. Although five pages of fucking botanical information probably was as close to a chore as I've ever gotten this series but this was this was the most disappointing book for me to read and if this mm. was if this was a series if you and I were doing a series of recommendations I wouldn't recommend this book to people
1: oh I say if you, if you read the, all the Bond books definitely read it for sure but as but if I say like for example what Bond novels recommend, you know, for me to read to get into the series. I would say something like uh, From Russia With Love or Goldfinger or Thunderball even, you know?
0: Yeah, the only thing that kept me interested in this book was the fact that it we had had 11, you know, we had had 11 narratives before this, which were all better. And I don't want to smash... Fleming too badly because he doesn't owe us anything he's a great writer and there are some really nice pieces of writing in this book but I think what we both agree is that the timing of this letdown is exceptionally poor and just when we wanted to see a great return to form for Bond and a recovery for Bond we see that entirely skipped over and just a I mean, it could have been anybody that killed Blofeld here. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't see why the Japanese uh, police force didn't get involved or why Interpol didn't. Because Bond, it could be anybody Bond's killing. He doesn't really seem to give a shit.
1: I think it would have been interesting if Bond had told or Tanaka figured it out or something. You know Tanaka's read about Bond. He knows that. You know, I was surprised with Tanaka. There was no mentioning whatsoever that, like, did you think Bond had... He probably had Bond's info. So would MI6 disclose the information that Bond just lost his wife and that he was widowed? Would he be aware that the bond is being sent to basically save his career? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, interesting. Who knows? Like,
1: he he never touched on that, and he espoused to be, you know, his friend and everything, but that was never touched on. And I think it would be interesting. I just think that Fleming... He had different like it's like a choose your own adventure. You have paths yeah, that your yeah. character can take, and Fleming uh, ign- ignored the I think the right paths in this storyline.
0: Yeah, in terms of I think you're on in terms
1: team. of fulfilling audience, you know expectation and whatnot. Um, yes, you you are allowed to be a writer and to indulge yourself and enjoy what you're writing, and, and, and but you also have a reading audience that you have to consider at the same time. You know, uh, such is the contentiousness of being a writer, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, we have to add an extra layer because... He doesn't just have a reader's audience, he also has a film audience. And at this time, I mean, Fleming's writing is now concurrent with the film film franchise, and there's noticeable shifts in Bond's character that really do feel pigeonholed, like all this Scottish ancestry stuff that just appears because Connery's in the role. And even some scenes, you know, like like the car chase just before Bond visits Tiger's training centre, it feels a lot like the car chase in Dr. No, so I'm wondering here about who's borrowing from who.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree with that. I, I definitely think he's he's inspired by certain things that he sees in, in the film. That, that's definitely for sure. Yeah, um, you gotta consider too is like, I can totally totally see now like Albert Broccoli and, you know, Saltzman and they have the script of like, or they have the book of Yolanda twice in their hands and I can see why they didn't make that book now into the film that they, you know, into that film yeah. uh, and did their own variation of it and Um, I can almost see now too why I think it's because the OHMS I think was some film that they, I think if Connery was still in the role, I don't think OHMSS would have been made to be honest, not the same way that it was. It was only because they had Lazenby and they were trying to do something different with the character than it did before. I think they took a risk on OHMS as a storyline and that kind of redeems the film, you know, even more so. Um, Then of course we have Diamonds Are Forever, right? The, So the conclusion to the Blofeld storyline in the films. And I mean, that was, that it's, uh, here's a question. Was the conclusion of the Blofeld storyline in Diamonds Are Forever, the film version, worse than the conclusion of the Blofeld trilogy in the books? That's one for the philosophers there.
0: Yeah, it's for the philosophers, because I'm going to throw a spanner in in the works now and tell you that the actual conclusion came when Roger Moore dropped Blofeld down the pipe. Or that uh, exhaust port and for your eyes only
1: yeah i actually really appreciated that they that they decided to come back to that at the end and the nostalgia of that was so powerful at that moment you know that Mm. it worked out really well
0: and you know what if you think about it if you think about it that's kind of like the book we have here we've got bond beginning at Teresa's grave like that pre-title sequence and then bond killing blofeld and all the japanese stuff doesn't happen (laughs) that's kind of the book that i wanted you know what i mean yeah basically yeah and, and it went teaser and roger moore did it for you there you go roger good good on you <laughs> okay look and dude. good
1: on john glenn and the director you know director yeah. of john glenn and you know yeah yeah let's move e- even, on uh what's We're... his name um who who was the composer of that movie the one bill that Conte. you did rocky bill conti bill conti even bill conti's you know 80s greekish score that you know <laughs> even, even that Props to that too
0: well, look, we're going to talk about the films, and we're going to talk about the yeah. I know <laughs> when when we get when we get to the end of this. But um, anyway, look, let's let's move on. Okay, we both didn't yep. like we both didn't like the narrative, and we both agree that there are pacing problems, and that there's not a lot to recommend there in terms of structure and yeah payoff. Let's I'm get gonna, Let's payoff.
1: get to the girl. Let's get
0: right. to Kissy, Kissy Suzuki. Well, look, I'll be really, uh. I'll be really quick. I'll be quick. So how about I go <laughs> first, and then uh, and then you can take over. Okay. Uh, Kissy Suzuki doesn't do very much for me. She she might be resourceful within the confines of her role and I guess her duty as like a fisher woman slash diver. Uh her attraction to Bond is coy, but really, apart from Fleming's infatuation with her pubes, her butt, and her perky breasts, there's absolutely well, there's not very much to her. She's attractive and her
1: black cat, don't forget her black cat.
0: Her black cat, yeah. She's attractive, and she's a good swimmer, and she's dedicated to her purpose, but come on, man, like, for a woman who has straddled both East and West, she isn't particularly bold or humorous or adventure-driven. In Leaving Hollywood, she also renounced some of her personality, I presume, because, fuck man, like, her behavior is entirely predictable and her humor is non-existent, until she takes advantage of Bond's amnesia, which I kind of thought was a cool development in her character, I'm looking at giving her like a one or a two. I thought that it was a pretty capitalist move on her part, a very entrepreneurial sort of ambition to do that, to secure the love that she wants when she sees that he's weak. Like I quite like that. It's very it's very interesting and so that that brought her up in my appeal a bit. And I like the fact that she went out to Fukuoka and got uh, got a sex book and some frog sweat, you know, just to jive up the relationship a little bit. Um <laughs> Yeah, in terms of other girls, uh, nice to see Goodnight given a little more active role in the story, even if it was just at the beginning when she was concerned for Bond. Uh, You know, I think there's development there that Fleming knows that there's an opportunity to do something in his next book that he's never done before, which is bring one of Bond's secretaries in as a bit of a help. Because Goodnight picked him up at the airport as well, didn't she, in the last book, and now she's here in a more active role. But I tell you what, the the call girl in that sort of blue massage house. Um, her name was Mariko Ishiban. She didn't really get much time to shine, but you know what? For posterity's sake, I'm going to give her that moment right now because, as far as I'm concerned, she deserves a moment. Mariko and her night of passion with Bond. I thought there was something that maybe she could have been a uh, uh, I don't know a little developed a little more. She was given maybe. three. She was given three pages. Three page. I kind of
1: thought she was, like, the version of, like, in the film version of, like, Aki, you know, who was the first girl that Bond, with, the first Japanese girl, who was actually an, another agent of, t- of Tanaka's.
0: Hmm, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Remember,
1: she was the girl that was poisoned with, like, the string or whatever coming down from the from the, from the ceiling with the, when the ninja put the poison down.
0: I do remember that, yes. Poor
1: girl. But, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you here, see, well, here's deal. I don't know. She has moments of charm, and I find is likable enough... Uh, there's kind of a nuttiness, madcapness to her, I suppose, and mm. it kind of makes the, the the Japanese Garbo moniker a bit earned in that way. But <laughs> keeping Bond in a cave and, I don't know, and going into town and getting porn and toad sweat for him, and uh, this is a woman who left Hollywood, you know, because women men were treating her badly, and only, like, David Niven, you know, was was the only one who treated her right. And uh, it just, just seems to me that, like, she would have easily have been taken advantage of in Hollywood given her personality.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and there's a great inconsistency, though, with her character, Kissy. I mean, you're back to Kissy now. I was talking about Mariko, but you're back to Kissy. Um, I'm, I'm just going to give you my score for the girls. I mean, there's an inconsistency there, but I really... Well, don't, and don't forget Irma. I include Irma in there, too. I can't. She was so f- empty. Like, there's nothing I know. Her. She's a wasted shell. That's what I said earlier. So, no, I'm not including her. She wasn't even a girl. So
1: England, yeah. to England, Englander spy!
0: Anyway, <laughs> that's about all she said. And, um, anyway... Like It was more interesting to hear other people talk about her ugliness than to actually see her talk In on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I was really interested in her, but I'm not interested in her here. No. Anyway, I went for... um, Yeah, out of, out of the girl marks there. I went for a three overall, which, now that I'm listening to myself, is quite surprising. But um, I, I, I say that three in good faith, and I don't think Kissy is terrible, but she's kind of bland. And I... L- <laughs> I don't even know so much that it's fair to give her a three, because I don't think she's worth a three. But I really like the fact that she selfishly takes advantage of the situation at the end. And I think that's cool. Like, I do think that's cool. And it's quite liberating. It's quite powerful for for uh, the, a female character to, to be given those ropes. And, uh, I, I mean, it's, the payoff is nothing, because she ultimately helps him go to Vladivostok when when he wants to go. But... I think it's cool that she gets those extra few months with him just by being, like, instead of sending him to a hospital where he can recover his memory, you know? So, yeah, Yeah. I went went three overall. I know it's a little generous, but I think my reading of this book could probably deal with some generosity, so I'm going to stick to it. I had a three as well. Oh, did you? Okay.
1: I I forgot about Mariko, though. I wonder why that, but whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, why don't you take me through... That's a three for me and a three for you, so why don't you take me through... um, your location to. Add.
1: This was probably probably my highest mark uh, interest. interestingly enough just because on um, uh, the islands of the Amma, the castle, the ancient brothel and the geyser the ancient brothel that they visited, the geyser chamber, the great hall and the castle, uh, those were all sublime touches. It fused the Orientalism and then horror together in a way that was very that was quite, was quite quite well done. The travelogue of Bond in Tokyo and Osaka was severely lacking in this book. It wasn't the travelogue that we were used to. It wasn't the travelogue of Bond flying from one place and him seeing, you know, the, the land. Of the, like we never had a description of the islands of Japan coming out of the water as he flies over. There wasn't anything like culture shock when he got there. There wasn't. I didn't get the smell of Tokyo or Osaka. The couple of the of the sushi bars or brothel houses they went to. You know, those had a bit of flavor, to them; that made things interesting. I think if there was, Diko was the narrative a bit longer, I think we would have saw more of that.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. And, Diko would have been cool to see more of.
1: Yeah, yeah I think you would have seen more of, like, the urban uh, Japan, you know? And I think that yeah. would have... I don't I really got an impression of Tokyo and Osaka, like I did, like, in, in the film version of You Only Love Twice, for example. Um, via Tanaka, I was mostly told about Japanese culture and the environment of the country, but I was never shown it. You know, and this is the big thing about this, again, is like we're told and not shown. And another indi- indication of Fleming Lagan at the helm again, I, I attribute this to, again, to his failing health. We read that. I read out that section in the uh, book there of, of his letters of how he really didn't know how he wanted to end it. He wasn't sure and things. So I think that definitely play, played a part in the lacklusterness of this book, in my opinion. Uh, and in, in, and in some of the description of the locations and the weakness of the travelogue as a whole uh, tiger as an exposition device he really took the sails out of Fleming's depiction um, especially his experience there I never got the impression that he was there you know like unlike other places uh, it's possible maybe he just couldn't feel what was so magical about the place and said it's shocked with his you know it shocked him with his terrible beauty instead of inspiring his writing but I think in retrospect, I think he did not want to talk about Japan, but he wanted to talk about it too much, you know. And him wanting to talk about Japan, I think, in the end, the locales were detrimental to the novel as a whole and the and of course the narrative as a whole in particular. So, uh, as I mentioned, I found I found the castle intriguing. That was it was really cool. The ancient brothel was a nice touch and how they described it and stuff and. Tiger was a good tour guide, so the locations came across, came came across well to me in that respect. And the islands were quite beautiful, and the David interv- and the and the David interlude I think really captured that. And that's when some of Fleming's writing in that moment of whimsy, as I mentioned, you know, is very strong. And so, you know what, a like whole, th- I th- get location. Sorry.
0: No, I just want to interject there because what you're saying is right, and it's those moments of whimsy that. It, that's where he feels like he's enjoying himself writing. And it's not surprising to think that, you know, this is the same guy who would, in a very different, under a different hat, write Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I mean, he has that playfulness about his writing, but he, he doesn't seem to go there very often with this one. It's like he's he's very conscious of his readership, and he's very conscious of, or sorry, not of his readership, but of, like, the film Bond. And um, I wonder how much that screwed with his brain, Josh, the fact that... He's dealing with a character right now that nobody that's watching the films has even seen yet. I wonder how much of that has played into this. Mm, like in terms really of Blofeld, he's dealing with a villain that nobody would understand. You know what I mean? Yes.
1: That that no that is that is that is that is definitely it. I think the I think the the ambiguity of Blofeld as a character in itself speaks to that. And I, I uh, just, as a whole, I just think that it's. I don't know. I I really had a, div- a div- difficulty scoring this particular section here.
0: But you, I really
1: did you... like. I did like. I did really like a lot of the visuals that he presented in the novel. But I also hate how he did the travel log in this particular book. Because um, he instead of doing a travel log that we were used to, he did a regular travel in this book. Like. Guide to Japan by Tiger Tiger Tanaka, you know? (laughs) (sighs) So I give it my highest mark even still, 3.5.
0: 3.5, yeah. Well, a 3.5 is exactly what I gave it as well for location. Um, And I feel like what I've done here in giving it a 3.5, I've kind of picked out things that I really liked and things that, you know, bothered me a bit. But I I went back to the beginning. Like, um, I like the way... Bond's introduction is set in that rose garden at Regent's Park. I like the idea of him looking up at his building and feeling like, okay, he has to go back to work, but he stretches his lunch hour because his lunch hour doesn't really mean anything. His work doesn't really mean anything. Like, I like the way the setting and its sort of contemplative environment, you know, of a garden and all that <laughs> stuff. I like, I about like the. Gar- Turn with the garden, yeah. Yeah, I like how that sort of gives you. So, suppose you, against the garden of death at the end. Mind oh that's true it does it's a good contrast I didn't pick up on that yeah the garden of death versus the garden that he was in at the beginning of the story that's a good shout there's a lot of like uh, well, I suppose that would be a touch towards giving a uh, you know a nod to the narrative that there's some structure in there somewhere um, Japanese interiors are nice um, I think they're lovely in a lot of them I really like the Geisha houses we get a feel for them um, and some of the bars are good the drinking spots that Tanaka and Dickinson take them uh, deco take a on are, are good but um, there's no depth or there's no texture to these um, they're just kind of physical descriptions that tell us what they look like there's none of the inter none of the really none of the interiors apart from two that i can think of are, are particularly charmingly detailed right there are nicer descriptions of locations elsewhere that transport the reader these are just kind of interesting from a foreign point of view but they're not really well rendered for me
1: that is a great assessment, Scott. I I'm I'm I concur with you, absolutely, on um, that.
0: And I think that that also has to do with the fact that Fleming is not at the top of his game. And I think, you know, we've got to speak to the white elephant in the room that the great writer might, you know, not the great writer, but the, you know, Fleming is past his best. I think we have to acknowledge that that's a possibility here. Have Whether it's
1: by his own competence or his just his alien health, you know that mm-hmm. doesn't really matter in the end. You know it's the it's the an objective an objective you know look at things. its yeah. you can't deny you know that conclusion.
0: No, and you can't deny it in any of us. And so it's not a criticism like he failed somehow as a human being. I mean, every you no. know we're we're all going to get to that point where we're past our best at some you know some venture, but he might be here. I mean, we haven't read The Man with the Golden Gun and we haven't read the other story of, uh, the other collection of short stories, but we're getting there. And yeah, I just think that he's, he's not at the top of his game in terms of rendering these locations. There's so much info dump in the novel that even the yeah. environment don't seem to matter to Fleming. Like, it's like info matters more. Um, I think he's going to,
1: this is the last novel that was published while he was alive.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Tanaka's underground station, though, is really cool. Uh, I like the sort of Asian folkways cover. I like that it's followed by this tape-recorded construction sound, and I love the descriptions of the nightingale floor. I didn't really mm. understand. I didn't know anything about that. Like, I found that was really cool. Uh, yeah. If you think about the underground station, that might have been borrowed by Skyfall.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, but also could, in the film, in the film version too. Of course, the subway actually works though in the film version.
0: It does. Yes, you're quite right. It does. I'm gonna to have to watch that again. I think maybe this week. It was. It's never one of my favorite Bond films because I think, like Fleming here, Connery is past his best, and he doesn't really care much either about the role at that stage. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna to have to watch that again because it's it's always the Bond film I don't pay enough attention to. Like I watch it. As uh, it, it has the,
1: it has some good aspects, but it's yeah. it's really to me the. I think Thunderball is Connery's peak, mm-hmm. and I think it's the peak of the Connery era per, 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 in, in in many ways. But he only went it twice. It's it's definitely more satisfying than Diamonds Are Forever as Connery's you know last go. You know, in my yeah. opinion.
0: Well, I'll I'll check it out. But
1: and just, Donald Pleasance is actually pretty cool as Blofeld. Like he, how he delivers the role. He's still my favorite.
0: B- blowfeld in my opinion see that's funny because i mean i agree with you cinematically i like him i, I actually think telly Savalis is is a pretty good blowfeld um
1: yeah but I then the i books, but... the way he holds the cigarette i just think of kojak and his tootsie pop you know <laughs>
0: like i know you do um, <laughs> anyway look i want to i want to read um a little bit about blowfeld's castle here okay it's first sure. described for us in, i would say within the first hundred pages um, we get a little bit more detail later, but as as we've already established, it is straight out of Stoker's Dracula. It's re, it, it's more castle of defense, though. Do you notice that it's not really a domestic place? Blofeld brings in an army of decorators, as Fleming writes, but mm-hmm. I mean, we we sense that it's really more defense oriented than a home.
1: Well, it is it is it is, it is on Kayucho, the southern island, and it's, you know near the Yama Islands and whatnot. You know, and it's uh, the Mongol, like think the, the Japanese, you know, they would have been at war with the Mongols, with the, mm-hmm. the Chinese over the centuries, the Russians. Mm-hmm. So it definitely, the, place, the, the placement of the castle is in a, in a very strategic place for obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, well, this is, this is how it's described. The castle was in an extremely remote corner of the coast, not far from Fukuoka, and the principal prefecture of the island, and in ancient times... It had been one of a line of castles facing the Toshima Straits, the scene of the famous defeat of the Russian Navy. These Mm -hmm. castles were originally designed to repel attacks from the Korean mainland. Most of them had fallen into disrepair, but the one chosen by the doctor was a giant edifice that had been occupied by the last war, until the last war, by a rich and eccentric family of textile millionaires, and its monumental surrounding wall was just what the doctor required for the privacy of his undertaking. An army of builders and decorators moved in. Meanwhile, plants ordered from the doctor began arriving from all over the world, and with a blanket customs clearance from the Ministry of Agriculture, they were planted in appropriate soils and settings. Now, I'm just going to skip ahead for a minute and read you the conclusion of that, which comes about 70 or 80 pages later. Um, Oops. Skipped ahead too far. Here we go. From the top of the wall there appeared to be a ten-foot drop into the park, heavily treed and shrubbed between winding streams and a broad lake, with a small island at its center. Steam appeared to be rising from the lake, and there were occasional wisps of it among the shrubbery. At the back of the property stood the castle, protected from the low-lying countryside by a comparatively modest wall. It would be over this wall that the suicides gained access. The castle itself was a giant five-storied affair in the Japanese tradition, with swooping-winged roofs of glazed tile. Dolphin-shaped finials decorated the topmost story, and there was a profusion of other decorative devices. Small balconies, isolated turrets and gazebos so that the whole black-painted edifice, edged here and there with what Tiger said was gold paint, gave the impression of a brilliant attempt to make a a stage setting for Dracula. There you go. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, anyway...
1: You think of the the visuals, you know, like in in the Lugosi... Dracula films of Castle Dracula, or even even better, what would be the, um, the castle in Coppola's, Fr- Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, like, it's on that cliff, right? It's on that cliff, and down below is the gorge with the river and all of that, right? It's that yeah. kind of sublime, Entirely. gothic imagery.
0: And in almost the same way, because, I mean, if we were to fault, and I don't want to fault it, because it's a wonderful classic of literature, but if we were to find a fault, if I was to find a fault in Stoker's Dracula... I would say something very similar, that the location um, kind of, like, okay, no.
1: Plus all those diaries got in the way of the characters.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) But here's what I'm trying to say, okay? In in this story, Fleming seems to um, overindulge with descriptions of the castle without giving us character description or without giving us development of Blofeld. And to me, that's a massive no-no. You have to develop your character. Don't like it's it's almost like he's saying, Look how scary this castle is, look how big this castle is, look how Dracula this castle is, the guy who lives inside it must be terrifying. The guy who not lives to mention... inside it must be bad. Like we yeah. know he's bad. We know he's terrifying. You don't have to pander to me that way. Instead of letting the environment tell me that this guy is a monster, why don't you give me some scenes with him? Do you know what I mean? Like Yeah I, I, I not feel, just I feel like the the environment here says more about the character than the writing, and I don't like that.
1: It's all, yeah, he, 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 he yeah, like, he uses, like, um, the, 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 the environment, the castle and stuff to, 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 to compose Blofeld's character. Yeah. And we're, we're even told, you know, by, by the, by, in the novel that the, the natives of the Amma Islands, they see Dracula, they, destroy sorry, Blofeld as the devil, like they actually believe that he is the devil, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. And yeah. so the abstraction is already be- being built into the narrative, anyways, of who his character actually is. And so I he don't just becomes that. like a, a symbolic. But he, but it's, it's so ephemeral in the way that it yes. just
0: robs him of his character. Exactly, it robs him of his character. And to right. me, I couldn't have said it better. He the Blofeld that's in a castle.
1: Character. Like they say that he's gone mad. I mean, I, I okay. They, they even mention that Bond sees that blowhole has gone mad. But at the same time, is this the same character in Thunderball who who electrocuted uh, one of his operator, you know, one of his operatives, you know, for messing with that American girl? You know, is this the same character? You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: exactly. and I just see don't see like
1: I, I don't I, I believe that he could go from altruistic uh, intentions uh, ultimately to megalomania, megalomania and even in this case here in the book, he does mention to Bond. That no one sees the world the way that I do, you know, like how the world should be run. And he sees all the acts that he, do, that he, that he does that that is necessary, acts to change the world in a positive direction. And he sees himself that way. And that was one of the few moments in, this, in, the, in the narrative to me that Blofeld showed his true colors of the character I originally saw. But I never got to feel his development throughout the trilogy at all, in my, in my opinion.
0: Josh, it was the only moment, that's why it stood out for you, because it was the only moment in the story where we got to see the characters, like we got to see any character development, everything else is exactly as you've said, you know, his setting, and look, if if I was teaching this book, right, if I was trying to do a proper analysis of this book for the sake of writing essays and preparing for exams, I would be milking the setting here, I would be telling the kids, look, this is Fleming using the setting to characterize Blofeld, but as you and I who have read 11 of these books, we don't want to see something as pastiche as that. Like we want to see Blofeld scenes. We want to see the major massive villain that killed Bond's wife in action. We don't want to read about a castle. Like, yeah, I appreciate that the setting of the castle is meant to make him a monster. I mean, Jesus, I don't need it any more obvious for me than this, but that's not what I want in this story. I want confrontations. I want scenes where, like in *On Her Majesty's Secret Service*, the two of these characters are really getting into each other. They're really sizing each other up. And Bond is regaining his strength. We don't get any of that. It's just, it's just, you know, finish the level by killing Bowser. Yeah. Like, that's all it is.
1: It's really telling now that, like the Oberhauser slash Blofeld, of Spectre, and the overlooming villain of the, all the bon, of all the Craig Bond films actually has more development than Fleming's original creation.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you might have something there. I, I wouldn't have wanted to agree with that before we reached this book. I know, I, I know. A I spine on it, but I think the, you're right. The,
1: the, the, the revelation, you know, like, I can kind of see why the writers went in the direction that they did with this character now.
0: hmm mm. Because oh, there it.
1: wasn't really much to, to pull from, uh, for, you know, like, if, if, can you imagine... Like in the modern Bond films, would just not work at all.
0: No, you're absolutely right. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. But I do think an adaptation of this particular text could work as a follow-up to Spectre. I don't disagree with you there. Yeah.
1: Moving on to the location. Um, as I said, I was 3.5. I think you were...
0: It's the same, 3.5. Same. So we're, we're ready to move on to equipment and close it up. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the ninja gear was pretty dope, I thought. Uh, I liked the device to keep the geyser from overflowing, the vo- the valve. That was kind of neat and mm-hmm. very convenient as well at the same time, though. Yeah, I guess um, so. Blofeld samurai kit, that was kind of cool. Um, I was amazed that he could use his sword so proficiently.
0: See, um, see, that's funny. That didn't even register for me. I just thought, okay, he has samurai stuff on, so he's going to have a sword. And I'm sure he's going to know how to use it because... It just seems like something that would be at the end of this book. <laughs> like, what does the boss? What does the boss use? Like, what does Bowser use? He blows fire because he lives in a volcano. What does yeah. the Japanese Blofeld use? A fucking samurai sword, of course he does. So, it, yeah, it didn't even register for me really as a piece of equipment, although clearly it yeah. was. But anyway. I'll give
1: I'll give props to to the ingenuity of uh, the originalness of K- 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 Kissy's equipment, like. The uh, aphrodisiac toad sweats and whatnot. Oh, right.
0: Uh, I thought you were talking about her perk breasts.
1: No, no. I'll leave Fleming deal with that. Um,
0: <laughs> and he does.
1: Yes. And her buttocks and all that. I know, I know, I know. Um, what else? Well, there's the I don't Uri- know. There, there really Uri- wasn't Uriette. a lot of. There wasn't really a lot of. The oh, Obiett was, was cool. Yeah. Well, I mentioned a, that one earlier.
0: Yeah, on the, on the lookout. It was cool, but it, it was entered and exited fairly quickly, and we never we never really got much more from it. It was. What can you tell me about? And there was the that, US? like, like what can you tell me about the tradition of them?
1: so what I understand is that they were just ways to trap people. Uh, from, I think they they offered a way into a castle for people taking a castle, and it offered a way to to, to trick to to, to, to trick. Uh, in, in, Invaded with a trapdoor, just to buy some time or get
0: hostages. Right, and and did they did they normally take the shape of this sort of sliding floor thing?
1: I don't know about a European castle, I don't know about Japanese castles, but European had something in uh, familiar, almost like you drop into a cistern or something like that by putting weak flooring down or something yeah,
0: like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool.
1: Um, well, or, or just or just a straight dro- drop into the dungeon, you know.
0: Yeah, there's the pressure room with the chair over the fumarole. Yes. And there's the piranha lake, which was kind of fun, but really it was just there for intimidation factor because Bond was never bothered by it.
1: They still feel more like environs than and locales more so than equipment. Than me. Well, they do,
0: but I guess the to reason honest, I'm, call- was- I'm calling them out as equipment because they were equipment because there's so little equipment in this friggin' story that it's the stuff that that blows. I, I know the stuff he accessorizes his home with
1: the the uh, helium balloons that, that hover over, with warning everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that okay. That's true. Bond uses that quite effectively, even though it gets shot and drops them five hundred feet into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, but it can't be five hundred feet. Like that's ridiculous height.
1: Yeah, I think he finally said he was going to that, I believe, or change that amount. Yeah, or no, he was going to reduce it to five hundred feet or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. We <laughs> don't with, even with,
0: care anymore.
1: With with the equipment. <laughs> I'm just at 2.5 to be honest. It was a pretty low tech adventure.
0: It was a very low tech adventure. Um, I went for three because I liked seeing some of the stuff, and I felt as though, although it didn't have a great narrative point, I thought it was, at the very least, something good that came out of Fle- that came out of Fleming's chat about Japan is that we got to see the ninja kit stuff. But it was ultimately it came to nothing. Like I'm being generous here because. Although we saw the ninja kit and Bond gets dressed up in it, we don't really get a lot of focus on it. And it seems to me like the discipline or the physicality of becoming and then, I guess, remaining a ninja is really more important than the kit itself. And when Bond is in the suit, he's able to climb the wall of the castle, not because of the suit, but do you notice this? Because of the footholds in the stone. So he basically could have done that in his own trousers. So, I mean, what, what we get is just this kind of... Impressive semi waterproof black suit, which I guess is kind of cool, but it's, it's no need for Bond to be in it.
1: I I know, and then of course he uses the ninja suit, and then we're there for him spending like two days in a in a in a, in a, in a, in a garden shed. You know, like it's just
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, next to the rakes, and then he hides under bags. <laughs> like it's it's very strange.
1: It's mo- it's, it's funny where like you know, there's moments of great verisimilitude in the storyline, and then all of a sudden it gets. Then we're kind of, you know, we're in Bowser's castle, you know, like it's just...
0: It's very weird, yeah. And the interior of the castle, getting back to the locales, and I don't mean to do this, but I think because the the castle itself is so standout, it is almost a piece of equipment for Blofeld because he's got the gardens attached to it. And the the interiors aren't even described. Like, you get a couple of chandelier references and a couple of blue cloth or red cloth things, but there's nothing. They're just big, empty rooms. Like, there's there's nothing really charming about them or or, or menacing or horrific. Um, the last thing I would say about the equipment is the, uh, the poison plants. I mean, they don't even come into it. Like for all the preamble and the five pages I was meant to read, I get one Japanese guy with a swollen face before he falls into the pit. Like that's, that's all I get. And yeah. That to me is absolutely no payoff, which is really metaphor for the entire story.
1: Yeah. The only one, the, the only one who gets a payoff at the end is, is Bond with that, uh, with that Japanese porn and, uh, fro- and toad sweat.
0: Oh, he gets a bit of payoff with that, but I don't know. And 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 Kissy too. Well, he leaves something behind, anyways. He does, and and God, like what's that about? Like knowing that Fleming dies later this year, and knowing that okay, fine, the man with the golden gun is in production, but I mean, Fleming just drops that. Oh yeah, Bond's yeah. got, got a baby that's somewhere here. Like she's obviously gonna have the child, and that's <laughs> going to that that's going to allow perhaps for like all kinds of interesting <laughs> spin-offs if you think about it. it.
1: It's it's interesting that like you know I'm surprised you know in many ways that it hasn't been acknowledged. It's, I guess Fleming was maybe just acknowledging the fact that you know what this guy has been around with a lot of women, and maybe he's just just kind of catering to the people expecting the realism of that somewhere out there bond has bastards you know
0: (laughs) Yeah, you could be right yeah it's like he needs to just call it out like okay at a time before and you know bond wouldn't be using protection and um, this is just him and let's face it kissy of all the bond girls would probably want to have that baby because it would be her way of keeping him to her yes absolutely anyway yeah i went to three and i felt it was a little generous you went 2.5 did you
1: yeah
0: right well I'm just going to tabulate the scores here, buddy. Do you, do you want to? Um, you want to say anything about <laughs> for your um, for your eyes only? You only live twice, just as I'm doing this. Closing. I was
1: I was so pumped about reading this book that in a way that I kind of wanted to make you know how like everyone says YOLO now like you only live once it's like a meme you know yeah and I, I thought maybe because this book would be would have been so great a payoff to the last book that you know we call it Yolt or something you know or think of something a new philosophy you know that Bond adopts you only live twice. Based on that, like Basho esque haiku that he develops, which is and, cool. I do like that. Yeah, that was a cool. But see, that's a good example of, of of touches of the world that Bond was in right there that Fleming adapted, in, you know, into his book in a, in a good way. You know, like giving the ex, he was showing, not telling. You know, again in that respect, yeah, yeah. because he was making the character itself involved into the creation of that haiku, and it was part of the. It was part of like Bond also himself acknowledging. You know, that in a way, this is a second chance at life, you know, like that was that was going into his psyche. And that there was there was there was there was I think there was uh, it was profound in, in, in that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But but as a whole, um, just 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 to go back, I wanted us to say, you know, uh, YOLTS would, would be the new buzzword, you know, but now I just want to move on, I'll, I'll move on from there. OK, <laughs> that's yeah. fine. Listen, just leave the disappointment
0: of you only live twice behind. Well, we're going to, and I have to say, you and I both gave this book a 14. Our scores were different, but we both came to the same number, 14 out of 25. Eek. And it's funny, because I was talking to Sarah, you know, throughout my reading, and, you know, I share little bits with her, and I talk to her about what we're doing, but uh, she doesn't really care. (laughs) Anyway, I was was just telling her that, you know, I'm I'm enjoying parts of this book, but I think it's going to end up being a poor score. And and it was. And I think, ultimately, my comments on narrative are what sum it all up for me. It's just so bad pacing, and it's so much of a letdown and a disappointment in terms of where we were not just eight months ago, in Bond's life at least, eight months ago, and what, like, so many different things could have happened here that would have been better. And all I needed yeah. to happen, all I needed to happen was for Bond to give a shit about Blofeld, and for Bond to, and for us to see Fleming write his main character in turmoil. Like, get to that emotional place inside of you as a writer where you're not afraid to let your character suffer, and I want to see that. I want to see a character that I've watched for 11 books not become a joke like he does with Connery-esque lines in this book. I want to see him really mourn the loss of his wife and really want to get back, or even struggle to get back into the saddle rekindle his passion for his job and kick some ass, but he doesn't
1: yep, that's (laughs) you couldn't put it, I couldn't put it better myself man
0: for now buddy, um, from here in Scotland it is a good night and uh, happy reading of The Man with the Golden Gun you as well Cheers buddy. I do. Have a good one. You
1: too.